Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntris here. Today, it's Brian Edward Hill. Really excited to talk to him. We check back on his Top Cow series that he did with Matt Hawkins and Isaac Goodhart called Postal. We also talk about uh, his Wildstorm work with Michael Cray. We get into uh, his writing on television. He's doing the Titans TV show for DC Universe's streaming service. And uh, this week, his detective run wraps up a great five-issue story. Really have enjoyed it. Batman, Black Lightning, and a lot of Batman sidekicks all dealing with a very interesting challenge as far as a villain. A brand new villain that I think makes a lot of sense, and I'm kind of hoping uh, that we'll see more of this villain in the future. Tough gig to come in and just hit it out of the park with Detective, given James uh, Tynan's excellent run and what's coming next. But uh, hats off to Brian Edward Hill for pulling it off. It's a great run, and I can't wait to talk to him. But I have to share with you the incredible experience I had at Terrificon last weekend at Mohegan Sun in Connecticut. Yes, they were a sponsor for Word Balloon, full disclosure. They flew me out. They bought advertising. But they also gave me eight panels of incredible comic book history conversation that I cannot wait to share with you on Word Balloon. And I felt, well, we're going back to school, and this is all comic book history. Let's uh, call it Word Balloon 101. Word Balloon University is opening for this semester for an eight-week course in comic book history featuring the likes of Roy Thomas, Don McGregor, Christopher Priest, Bob Allman, the great inker that worked with Sal Voluto, Voluto on the Black Panther books, um, Denny O'Neill, Jim Starlin, Joe Rubenstein, so many great stories, not only about the works, but also behind the scenes at DC and Marvel. You are in for a treat. So Word Balloon 101 will be happening at the end of each week, and uh, we will be presenting some incredible conversations uh, from Terrificon between some of these amazing creators. 80 Years of Superman, a look at the Ro a Robin Boy Wonder history of all the various Robins. Really, really great stuff. Mike Barr, Denny O'Neill, Pete Tomasi, Tim Seeley. Um, just a great bunch of conversations. Dave Michelini, an incredible conversation about Venom. All this coming in the weeks ahead here on Word Balloon. I hope you'll join me for that. But again, today, the focus, Brian Edward Hill and his incredible work on Detective. It's a great conversation. I can't wait to share it with you on today's Word Balloon. Word Balloon is brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. The League is made up of Word Balloon subscribers via Patreon at wordballoon.com. And you can click on the Patreon ad or you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon. Now, as a special thank you to the League of Word Balloon listeners, if you want a deep dive and an advanced listen to all the great Terrificon panels, the only place to do that will be at my Patreon page. I will be putting these out, as I said, at the end of each week. But uh, if you want to get them all very quickly, you can do that by subscribing to Word Balloon. Thank you for your support, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Brian Edward Hill, some really great stuff is waiting for you at InStock Trades. Mostly his run on Postal. All six volumes are there, uh, one through six, at 42% uh, off the cover price. Let's see, volume one is $5.79, volume two is $8.69. Volume 3 is also $869. Volume 4 is $869. Volume 5 is $985. Volume 6, the final volume, is also $985. So just be aware of that, but tremendous uh, story. And uh, we talk a bit about it and preview it in our conversation with Brian. You're going to want to check out Postal 
and I'm sure in the years to come we'll be getting more volumes of uh, Brian Edward Hill product at InStockTrades.com. Great books at great prices, InStockTrades.com. All right, without further ado, let's get into our great conversation with Brian Edward Hill. Uh, Really informative. Great stuff. I mean, he's working on Detective. He's worked on the first season of the Titans TV series for DC Universe. We talk Postal. We talk about Michael Cray and the Wildstorm Universe. And uh, Brian's got a lot to say. And he's a a really interesting guy. I have a feeling that uh, this is the beginning of many uh, Brian Edward Hill conversations here at Word Balloon. But here's the first one. Brian Edward Hill, now on Word Balloon. Brian Edward Hill, welcome to Word Balloon. As I was just telling you off the air, long time coming, and I'm really glad you're here. Thank you for having me. I'm really happy to be here. You know, uh, Isaac Goodhart was the guy who alerted me to you uh, back in the oh, postal yeah. days. Sure. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know for, you, we're, let's, we'll get into Detective, but I do want uh, Batman fans to, you know, have the opportunity to dig back and uh, read some of classic Brian Edward Hill, if you will. Give us the elevator pitch on Postal. Sure. Well, well Postal uh, was my first comic book, like long-term comic book project. I had done, you know, a smattering of stuff, like a, okay. a one-shot here, a short story there. But um, Postal is a top cow image book that I worked on with Matt Hawkins. It's about a small town in a place called Eden, Wyoming, that is entirely populated by criminals. And they're either fugitives or they're people that have served their time and they want a fresh start. So it's like this self-enclosed environment um, that has its own near-draconian laws. Uh, and they're trying to find a way to live sort of in America but outside of the system of government of America, off the grid as it were. And the story is uh, told through the protagonist, Mark, who is the postman of the town, who's also been diagnosed with Asperger's. Okay. And uh, because he has such a fine attention for detail and a rather unique way of looking at the world, he serves um, kind of ipso facto as a detective. And uh, the mayor of the town is his mother, Laura. So uh, the story is really about how their family tries to keep order in a place that's always destined for chaos with sins from the past always coming to threaten the present and the future. That's awesome. That's great. Now, uh, for the Asperger's uh, portion of the story and everything, yeah, how, how did you research all that? Well, you know, it's really interesting, John. So Matt had come to me because um, we were, you know, we'd have a coffee every now and then when okay. I'd done like uh, a, a comic book here, a comic book there. And I think I'd already sold a screenplay. Um, so I'd moved out to L.A. And Matt and I were, you know, just sort of talking about what, what we could do. You know, I reached out to him and said, I want to do a comic book, man. I want to really dig in, though. I want to I want to do like a longer run on something. You know, do you have something there? And I thought it was you know, maybe there'd be like a Top Cow Universe thing, like a Cyber Force or what have you or sure. what have you. And Matt's like, well, I had this idea about this town full of criminals and the postman, the son of the mayor. He has Asperger's and all that. Like, what do you think about that? And I thought it was really interesting. I. I was in the middle of reading a lot of Southern, you know, uh, crime fiction. Uh, I'm from Missouri originally, okay. from St. Louis, Missouri. So, you know, I come from the land of mosquitoes and cicadas and humidity, <laughs> you know, not all that. Not too far from all, Chicago, but, but yeah, like about three hours away. Yeah, like, not yeah. too far, man. Um, uh, but Chicago's like where everything cool starts. Ah, come uh, on now. That, what yeah. kind of Cardinal fan are you to, to say such oh. a thing? Come on. I, you know, like, it's funny. We would talk about Chicago. Like, well, Chicago, that's the city. You're, you know, you're going to the city. Like, <laughs> I understand. That's real. Chicago's real. Um, 
but yeah, you know, I, I, I always had a soft spot for that kind of, uh, that kind of fiction, okay. you know, and Southern fiction, um, yeah, Southern crime fiction. Yeah. And I was reading like Capote, like in, in cold blood and some sure, other things. Sure. I think, you know, I was like, yeah, I got, I kind of got this vibe. So I just went back uh, to my home office and I just wrote him two pages kind of stream of consciousness, John, like just, okay, I see this and I see this could happen and I see this. And then I think I sent him maybe six or eight JPEGs of different things I'd grabbed from the internet, like images that were kind of in my mind or close to the images in my head. Okay. And I sent them all to Matt. Matt, you know, he reviewed it. Um, was like, yeah, this is cool. Uh, I like this. Uh, you know, why don't we co-write the first couple arcs because, you know, he had some, some specific things he wanted to kind of get out. And he's like, after that, you know, if people are reading it, you can sort of take over. And that's what happened. So I co-wrote the first two arcs with Matt. And then the third arc, uh, I just sort of took it over solo. I would still consult with him about, like, well, I'm planning on doing this and doing that and making this move so that he would be aware of it all. But, yeah. And that wound up being about a 25-issue run, I that's think. Right. And, um, you know, it, it was like the little book that could for, you know, it, like people would find it and read it and and – uh, they'd get invested into it, and, and it really introduced me into the entire world of comics. Uh, you know, having you know a story that you're telling, an issue coming out every month, it's just invaluable. How how much that helps you as a writer to learn your craft, see the effect of your work, make adjustments. I mean, it's comics are so special in that way because you get that that near instant feedback on what you're doing, and it's unlike anything in screenwriting or te- even television writing. You know, it takes so much time between the time you finish something to, you know, really get some feedback. And then most of the things you, you write won't get made. Even if you make money off of them, they still won't get made. I hear you. you know, yeah, or but, change on the set as it's being shot. Or change. Yeah. Right, right. You know, it, so the, the kind of direct line from imagination to shelf that comics represent is a really special part of popular culture. I'm really – I always love hearing – screenwriters that come to comics and really want to do them and stuff. And, you know, I just talked to, uh, I'm, I, I think, you know, Joe Henderson, right from Lucifer. For sure. For sure. Okay, yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. And his, you know, his, his latest image book and stuff. And yeah, he's, he basically said the same thing that as great as it is to make things for film or television, how, you know, satisfying it is that what you write pretty much is what is made and then becomes a comic. So not surprised, but, uh, that's awesome. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I think Matt's a great high concept guy. I always love talking to Matt Hawking. So I think he's, you know, I, it's I I give him credit for keeping Top Cow going in a very competitive uh, comic book shelf, and it it keeps getting more competitive and stuff. And I always give him credit for you know, and he, he's always a pleasure to talk to. He's been on the show a few times. So yeah, Matt Matt's great. I mean, he's got such a thirsty mind. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's always studying and learning, which I, th- I think is the, one of the most important aspects of being a writer is just learning constant all the curiosity. time, like making yourself yes. in it. Yeah. Constant curiosity. You're the eternal student, yes. you know, when you're writing. Absolutely. And he's, he's very much like that. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of his ideas, they just come from really interesting places like the nooks and crannies of possibility is the way I describe it. Um, so it's, it was great, you know, working with him on postal. And I, you know, I still work with him uh, today. He's a good friend of mine, Matt, like, you know, Matt, cool. Matt is responsible for my career in comics I always trace everything back to Matt because if Matt hadn't started giving me an opportunity to have a platform, then I wouldn't have the platform I have now. That's excellent. Now, what came between it, it? Did things come between Postal and Detective? Well, TV came between Postal and Detective. Talk to me John. about TV um, for a second. Though. 
<laughs> so I was wrapping up a postal and, um, you know, it got optioned off to somebody, which sounds nice and fancy, but nearly everything gets optioned off to somebody. So that doesn't really mean. Is it much. still like that, Brian? I mean, I, I truly, I mean, because I, I know I remember a few years ago, certainly. Uh, God, now it's almost been about uh, eight or ten years ago. That was certainly the case. And it seemed, too, that um, the non-DC and Marvel stuff was certainly attractive to be optioned because it was a lot easier to deal with, you know, creator owns versus, you know, the big corporations of uh, even before Marvel was with Disney, you know, even when Marvel was just itself. And then, of course, DC and Warners. Well, yeah, it's it's still happening, uh, uh, John. It's just it's it's difficult all around to just get something made. Right. So, you know, when, when you hear about something getting optioned, it sounds very, very shiny and, and, and fancy. But, okay. you know, you're not talking about that much money up front. And then it heads into that jungle that we call a development process sure. where most things die in the quicksand. Yeah. Uh, you know, clutching on to the best of intentions. <laughs> so, yeah, it, you know, it, it, people acquire ideas. We, we are in a acquisitions race, an arms race of mm-hmm. concepts and, and intellectual property. Now, whether or not, you know, any of the missiles get fired, uh, who knows? Okay. Like there's a lot of – so people build like stockpiles of ideas, but it's still very difficult to get that green light. Um, but when, you know, when you do get something optioned, you get the the – press release, you know, you show up on deadline, you show up in the Hollywood reporter. And then anytime someone sees a new name, they got to find out who that new name is. Cool. Who's this person? So Mark for Hyden, uh, who was the showrunner of Ash versus evil dead, former war below uh, guest was, and a huge comic book writer himself. And, uh, course, Oh, Mark is yeah. amazing. Just an amazing Big guy. Fan. Right. And, Big fan. And he, you know, because he's this awesome comic book fan, you know, I, he has this whole like museum, in his house of awesome comic book art. Oh, you know, that's the guy fantastic. Is, that doesn't surprise me. Absolutely legit. Absolutely legit. <laughs> Battlestar so, Galactica also and Falling Skies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a, a career. He's, he's the, uh, the showrunner on the new Swamp Thing show. Oh, on, wow. Uh, oh, he's, yeah. Wow, that's awesome. That's him and James Wan. Oh, yep, that's it's, it's Mark great. and James Wan. Wow. Yep. So Mark had, I think, either heard of Postal or read Postal, realized that I had had some television pilot I'd written that I hadn't sold to anyone. But, you know, they were samples, right? So when you write something and people think it's good, but they can't buy it for this economic reason or this cultural trend reason, what have you, uh, it turns into a writing sample, mm-hmm. right? And then that floats around and, you know, people read it. And I think Mark read the writing sample, read the comic, and was like, okay, well, this guy is kind of interesting. And he, you know, he sat and he, he met with me in a coffee shop and just asked me if I'd be interested in working on season three of Ash vs. Evil Dead. Oh, that's um, great. Yeah, and that was my first season of television. Oh, I'd wow. never worked in television before. I, I hadn't done any sort of like studio matriculation program. Okay. None yep. of it. I mean, yeah. I had written shows and I'd studied how one makes a television show, but I hadn't at all, you know, done any of the stuff people normally do. Uh, so I was a little intimidated, John, but, uh, I said yes. Cause I often do. And, um, started working, you know, on the show and Mark was great. So that experience, uh, kind of stopped me from pursuing a lot of comic opportunities because I wanted to focus, you know, I really sure. wanted to 
be there for Mark on that show, uh, all those demands and, and all of that. And I uh, uh, did that season. And then when I finished it, um, you know, I, I thought, well, maybe I'll go back and I'll do some more comics now. Maybe I'll, uh, you know, create some IP or whatever is who we're going to do. And then I wound up getting uh, an offer to work on Titans okay. very soon after the t- Evil the, Dead. The Titans TV show or the Titans comic? The Titans, the Titans television show. Okay. Uh, okay. Because everything is a is a uh, a web of people who like each other in Hollywood. Sure. So Mark and Jeff Johns know each other well. I think Mark recommended me to Jeff Johns. Then I met Jeff. Cool. And I and I'd never met Jeff before because I'd never done any work for DC, John. I I, I think at that time I'd done like a one shot for Marvel by then. Okay. I did, I did a one shot, uh, a totally awesome Hulk. Okay, uh, yeah. While I was on Evil Dead, um, and uh, uh, I, you know, I hadn't done much work over the DC side, but uh, you know, Jeff and I, we sat down, we had a conversation. He was really great, and he's like, "Hey, do you want to, you know, work in the show?" And I was like, "Sure, that yes. sounds cool." So I just, you know, I just jumped on, onto that and uh, started doing that. And it was during Titans that I got the email from Chris Conroy over at DC. Asking if I was interested in writing a five-issue arc of Detective. Cool. Uh, and I was floored by that because, you know, you Batman is like the Hamlet of comics. <laughs> so, like, sure. you know, every actor wants to play Hamlet at some point, you know? We, like, anyone who writes comics and says they don't have a Batman story is probably lying, <laughs> right? Like... You know, we all we all kind of have our own way of doing the to be or not to be speech. We kind of do it in whispers when no one's looking. But if we could just do that thing, then they'd know Olivier wasn't the only one that could have played the character, right? So, you know, we're all carrying this candle flame of a dream. And, uh, you know, Chris asked me, hey, would you be doing it? And I'm like, you mean like Detective Comics? Or are you guys doing like some other thing called Detective <laughs> This isn't the real detective comic. Like, not the real detective. You mean, like, Sandman Mystery Theater or something? Like, like, because, you know, because there's, like, James Tynion, who's, like, a legend in comics, and then there's the postal guy. (laughs) Hey, man. Well, you're in good company, because that's kind of like Brad Meltzer following Kevin Smith on Green Arrow. And it's like, who would want to follow that kind of run and you're right james obviously did james is doing great in the batman world absolutely and uh had a fine run on detective and everything you're you're right uh but this he's such a fantastic yeah yeah well Um, all right this is good because i do want to get back to ash versus evil dead and titans but while we're on the detective tangent yes let's let's continue and then talk about this uh this great story that you're doing with karma and what looks to be the beginnings of the outsiders i mean they're you can't help but notice with Black Lightning and now Katana showing up at the. Oh, pe- at the... people are you know people have their conspiracy theories for sure. My my Twitter feed is full of red string connecting to different photographs. Sure. Markovia, you know, Markovia being part of the backstory and everything. It's like, yeah, right, how about the only that? thing that's missing is the the ghost of Jim Aparo showing up and uh, doing a yeah, cover you know, for you or something like that. It, it's all a coordinated coincidence, you know. I I I, um, I, I, I have no idea, you know, uh, about all that. Um, yeah, well, you know, it started, you know, Chris emailed me and said, Hey, you know, five issues of detective, um, we'd like black lightning to feature prominently in the arc beyond that. We don't really have any, any rules. Interesting. Really? Literally just, it has to involve black lightning. 
Yeah, just like can you you know you know would you incorporate Blight Lightning into the thing and you know yeah. we're we're looking to to kind of reinvigorate interest around that character. Oh, yeah. We think having him work with Batman would be really interesting because of their history and you know kind of the annals of the fiction. Yeah. So I uh, I I talked to Scott Snyder on the phone, who I knew a little bit because Scott and I were on a panel when I had another image book I wrote called Romulus that was a four issue kind of miniseries that uh, I'd put through Image. And so... Okay, yes, I'm nodding. I remember... I certainly remember the title. Go on. Yeah, I, so I, I sat in a panel with, uh, with Scott, um, you know, that the year that came out, and he was super friendly. I mean, you know Scott. Like, he's... Oh, yeah, Like, dude. everybody's big brother, man. Yeah. He's just such a good dude. Solid, solid dude. Yep. Uh, yeah, so I told him, you know, well... I, I, I said to Scott, James has done such good work with the largesse of this world with these multiple bat family characters with these, these introductions of, uh, metaphysics and powerful sci-fi elements and in all of this stuff, I don't want to just chase what James was doing. Sure. What I'd like to do is almost create like an emotional kind of, uh, addendum to what's going on with the character and Tom's work and kind of bring it, uh, down a little bit to the ground level. Um, uh, you know, I talked to Scott about crime and, and human consequence and putting the citizens of Gotham in the center of the story again. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's the Batman that I know. Like, when I think of Batman, I think of, you know, the, the guy in the bat suit that's protecting the innocent people from the horrors that are trying to destroy them. That's, like, where my mind goes. I... I'm still wrapped up in the experience I had reading The Dark Knight Returns or, you know, Year One, Arkham Asylum. Like, that's my Batman. Sure. Legends of the Dark Knight Batman. That's yeah. my Batman. Absol- Dude, by the way, this absolutely would have been a great Legends of the Dark Knight story. Not that it's not a great detective story. Oh, thank story, you. But no question. Appreciate that. that. I, well, yeah, man, that was that was the beauty of that book was it was like, okay, now let's welcome this creative team. And they're going to kick ass for four or five issues and tell a great story. I was Denny O'Neill and I were just talking about not that he didn't need another classic Batman story, but Venom, the the first you know Venom story that obviously led sure. to Bane. But you know, no stuff like that or God, and I can't even remember the British team that uh, uh, did an incredible Batman story, and it wasn't Alan Grant or anybody obvious like that. But that's the thing. I'm like, oh my God, and th- that's what's great is everybody you know would come in and do kind of their take on Batman and Legends of the Dark Knight, and it was terrific. And that's what this story feels like in a very positive way. Well, yeah, you know, one of the most influential stories on me when I was a kid was The Cult. Great story, um, yes, indeed. Stephen yeah. Grant. Yeah, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was Starlin. Oh, yes. Um, and, uh, oh, oh, I'm, I'm dropping a name. Yeah, Some me terrible too. names. Me too, uh, all right, because, yeah, I wasn't sure if it was Stephen Grant, but, yeah, it was Starlin. Who I'm Show notes. <laughs> we'll tackle that in show notes. Yes, I'm gonna. Well, I'm gonna look it up while we're talking, but that's fine. Keep going. No, keep talking. Um, <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So that was you know just hugely influential. I mean, I still remember the prose from it. I still remember like you know my present reality is not a pretty place. It's a thing of agony and delirium. It's hard to think. Damn hard, right? Like I that just really spoke to me because it was an experiential way to kind of experience the, the, the Batman universe and the characters will and drive and all of that. Uh, so by I, the way, I uh, and you, we're both going to just kick ourselves. Bernie Wrightson, of course, just of a, course, a, Bernie Wrightson, of course, 
passport. It's like forgetting Tom Cruise. Who's that guy in Mission <laughs> yeah, Impossible? Yeah, whoever. You know, yeah, blah, the good-looking guy. He's always young. Too, too bad um, he never amounted anything to great Bernie Wrightson. Exactly. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Another sweetheart yeah. of a guy. God rest his soul. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Bernie was great, man. His work still endures. Oh, um, yeah. So, yeah. So I, I just, you know, it just sort of pitched Scott like random idea. I mean, the, thing, the great thing about talking to Scott about story is you don't have to bring him fully formed stuff. You can just bring him notions, ideas, moments, images, and he won't tell you what to do, but he'll help pull the the best stuff out of you, you know, and, and he'll say, oh, if you're doing this, well, have you considered and what would you do with this? He asks a lot of questions, which is great. That's what you want when you're getting feedback from someone is questions, is questions they they unearth, you know, maybe things that you don't even know that you wanted to do. But by, you know, through reflection, you realize, oh, yeah, 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 I want to do that. So he was excited. I got excited. I told Chris, yeah. And then I asked him if I could create my own villain, um, which wasn't really a matter of personal vanity as much as not wanting to have to wrestle with the continuity the villains were in at the time. <laughs> sure. No, and, 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 and like, a lot of them are on the chessboard right now in Tom's story. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of them are on the chessboard, you know, because we were leading up to the to the wedding and I didn't know who was available and who wasn't. And obviously, you know, Tom needs all the space he needs to sure. do what he's doing. Right. So I uh, I pitched him this idea for this villain. It was this villain named Karma who um, had this mask slash helmet that would allow him to read thoughts and this this idea of him wanting to kind of reframe Batman into the scariest and most legendary aspects of himself by whittling away the world around him, you know. Kind and, of in the way that Hunter Zolomon is doing in Flash with, with yeah. Wally and Barry. But yeah, and that whole and I love that whole recurring thing theme that uh, goes through each of your chapters so far, that when he encounters Orphan and Signal and, you know, the like, it's you know, you're weakening him. He's not and, right. and again that's kind of the same area that uh, Tom is playing in with Selena and Bruce as well, and that's certainly the argument that Joker gives to Catwoman and says, you know, if if he's happy, uh, he may not be the hero that he needs to be. Well, it's it's like the it's the inherent contradiction of Bruce Wayne. You know, this idea that he has to be he is a man, but simultaneously wishes to be more than a man. You know, and those two things don't live well inside of a life. You almost have to choose to dedicate yourself to one or the other. And I, uh, you know, I just go back to criminals are a cowardly and superstitious lot. You know, I, I, you know, I, I shall become a bat and thinking about, okay, but if you're that, if you're the creature of fear, what happens to that fear when you start sharing your legacy with other people, especially younger people? Yep. And what happens when, when Gotham starts to see you as, oh, well, you're not you – no, know, the Batman isn't legend. The Batman's just a guy. Yep. Well, if he's just a guy, well, we can kill a guy. Um, and I wanted to sort of you know, kind of put all that in stark relief with, uh, with a character that would uh, threaten Bruce by not only threatening the people he cares about but threatening the innocent people in the city as well and um, kind of forcing him to – to step into that role of of Gotham guardian, you know, uh, again, and in uh, in the back of my mind was always, well, he's dealing with what Tom is doing in Batman. They are the same character. 
This is happening sure. simultaneously. So I also wanted to put a little touch of what Tom was doing with Batman into my arc, but do that in a more like kind of high concept, high stakes, uh, action thriller uh, landscape. Um, uh, because Tom's kind of character stories uh, are so good, I didn't feel like I wanted to kind of double up on that. Beat. Well, and it's a slower uh, burn. I mean, it's a hundred. It's a hundred like, yeah. issue. Hundred issues, compared right? Compared to so, your five issues, sure. certainly, absolutely, yeah. sure. And Tom was really supportive of it as well. I mean, you know, he and I both enjoy delving into psychology behind things. Sure. Uh, so we have a real kinship there. And everyone in the Bat office, uh, all the Bat writers, Tinian was incredibly supportive. He's like, yeah, man, that sounds cool. Just go ahead and do your thing. Excellent. So it was a relatively smooth process getting from uh, initial ideas outlined to actually starting the script and getting the books out there. Very cool. Now, at, let me ask about Karma because his – his helmet, which seems to be, you know, the key to his powers, um, he, it's it's given to him kind of in a almost a weapon sort of little, you know, deal with uh, this Mar- oh, yeah, Markovian yeah, yeah. woman. Who, you know, are we gonna are we gonna learn in this arc the source of the helmet and where it comes from, or is that a story to be told in another time? Will you're gonna get the pertinent information uh, by the end of the story for sure? Okay, um, yeah, we got one chapter now, to go. As there's we're still yeah. Yeah, there's still layers, right? So sure, one of the things sure. I wanted to do was uh, kind of introduce this idea of a arms market for radical technology <laughs> that exists in the world, right? Yeah. Um, to kind of create this kind of uh, kind of landscape of like you know alien tech that's just left. Because I thought to myself, well, all of these battles happen, all of these things take place sure. in comics, and there's all this detritus. That's just left in the Good wake word. of everything. Talk to me. Define detritus. I have never heard that word. That's awesome. Oh, it's like, you know, like the remnants, the discarded bits and pieces, okay. right? Like the kind of <laughs> junk landscape, right? That's like word, so, of, word balloon word of the day, ladies and gentlemen, detritus. I like that. That's fantastic, Brian. Go on. <laughs> so so you have all of these things are there. I'm like, well, what if, what if people are gathering those things and kind of reselling them and, sure. and for sort of figuring them out? And that seems like a problem that is, is, is worth it. You know, I... A friend of mine is a police officer and uh, a really dedicated one. And he talks to me a lot about the difference between fighting criminals and fighting crime. And he says, well, if someone has a gun and they want to use it and I stop them from using it, at that moment I fought a criminal. Mm -hmm. But I haven't fought crime until I figure out how that gun got into their hands. Get to the source, yeah, yeah. The source, right? Like – what are the circumstances that gave this person this illegal firearm, assuming they had the firearm illegally? And and that's sort of what I wanted karma to be was the sort of tip of the iceberg mm-hmm. of a larger problem sure. that that the heroes of the DCU might need to address in future stories. Okay. Wow. Nice. That's excellent, man. No, and I think that's a great theme. And, you know, I uh, – yeah, okay. That's it. And it's interesting, too, that you – let slip that it's alien tech necessarily, because who who's to say, you know? Yeah, well, you know that's in in um, I think issue two. Oh shame uh, on me! I glossed over that fact that it's an alien. There's a nine panel tech. grid, and and the arms dealer uh, says, uh, you know, I might not know where it come. Right. Perhaps alien. Oh, that's Maybe you try kill a Superman. 
Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, yeah. I, I did see that scene and, I, scene, and I wasn't paying attention. Okay, very Well, I'm, I'm a huge Ian Fleming fan, so, you know, anywhere, anytime I can put touches of James Bond in something, like, you're definitely going to get a touch of James Bond. Sure. Like, I've got a, I've got a scene where Bruce is uh, thinking try to jog his memory to figure out where does this man karma come from. Yes. Uh, and he's driving this Ferrari yep. on the cliffs, yep. you know, and that's my kind of James Bondian moment for Bruce Wayne. Um, so I like to work the intrigue in. You know, I like the intrigue and the mystery and and all of that, along with the traditional, you know, superhero, supervillain kind of fisticuffs. Sure. Sort of weaving all those things together. Well, you're achieving it, man, because honestly, I, I think it is a good... Like you said, it's a high action story, but there's a lot of character in there as well. And there is, like you just uh, described in everything, a very introspective moment for Bruce kind of figuring it out. I love uh, Jeff Pierce's role of uh, kind of protector and teacher and kind of, you know, watching out for, in particular, uh, three of, uh, for people who haven't been reading the story, you know, three of, three of Bruce's, uh, you know, uh, sidekicks. Uh, and it's Barbara, it's uh, Orphan, the former Cassandra Cain Batgirl, and mm-hmm. uh, and of course uh, Signal as well, and um, it's it's great. And I I love my one of my favorite moments of your story is especially Barbara going to Jeff and being like, hey, you know, this is how he, you know, he's like, you're here to, pro- <laughs> oh, yeah, you're here yeah, to yeah. be protected. You're not supposed to be in the field. I'm here to watch out for you three. And she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Bruce's like test. Sure, and sure, it's like yeah, yeah. you got to know when to break the rules. That's when Bruce accepts you as being part of the family. Because yeah, she's seen this before, and that's what I kind of like. Is yeah, they that's all, the fun? They, like, yeah, they all represent different levels of being there for Batman over the years, and even in uh, thank God with Rebirth, there's still a lot of Oracle in Barbara, and I even love right. that you, you've one of the panels. Who's your artist? Forgive me. Oh, it, it's um, uh, Miguel Mendonca for the first. Two and then Felipe Briones uh, for the middle two and then Miguel for the final issue. Okay, well they're 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 both doing a great job, but I love that. Yeah, even there's that's that, really good stuff. Yeah, there's that one panel of Barbara sitting in a very Oracle sort of way. Oh yeah, yeah. When she's like researching yep. or, and then sitting like by the computer. Yep. Well, you know that was that's an intentional nod towards her Oracleness. I figured as much. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which. I love, yeah. You know, uh, when you know when I was reading it. Um, well, that was the fear that aspect of her character. Yeah, that was, was interesting. I think, yeah, I think that was the fear bringing her back to Batgirl. I get it, and I, we all get right. it. But by the same token, man, she evolved into such a much more interesting character as Oracle while she was disabled, and and it's like I said, I, I get that why she needs to be Batgirl, and she's the most recognizable Batgirl, and that they're, I'm glad they're keeping that element of Bar- the certain writers are, and clearly you're one of them. Yeah, I, I you know that well. It's an important role on a on an action squad. Yeah. you know to be able to have like real time, you know, kind of eye in the sky research. Yep. It's like super important, um, and it's fun to to write Barbara because she is so spunky and so headstrong, and to put her in a situation with Jeff, and you know, and Jeff Pierce, he thinks everyone in Gotham is crazy. <laughs> like he's like you're all crazy people. You know, <laughs> like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You mean none of you can shoot anything out of your hands? <laughs> no, he's great. like, n- none of you, you know, <laughs> like, so I really wanted to, 
have him have this outside looking in perspective like, okay, one, I'm still trying to deal with the fact that Bruce Wayne is Batman, which he realizes over the course of the arc and is like, okay, I, I need I need time with that just to put that together. But, you know, he's seeing like young people that are put in these high stress situations and everyone seems intimate and comfortable with this level of violence. And he's really just trying to play the game the way that Batman wanted him to play it. But Barbara is also like, well, you know, this is Gotham, so you got to catch up, man. Right. Like, Bruce says a lot of stuff. <laughs> right. And you got to know when and, he's just kind of talking and when, when he, you know, when he means what he says. No, I'm with you. And also, like right. you said, Jeff's, like, I love Jeff's fish out of water perspective of, I, I don't understand why you need me for this. And, right. and, you know, whatever. And yeah, when he does kind of, you know, realize that uh, Batman is Bruce and, and Bruce reveals himself to him and everything. And it's just like, all right. <laughs> Like you said, I gotta catch up, so I'll do my yeah, best. I gotta, I gotta deal with it. Well, you know, and <laughs> I see Jefferson Pierce as a character who is deciding what he wants to become. I mean, you know, Batman is finished for all intents and purposes, right? Like he's he sort of realized his thing, his mission, bat suit, the whole thing. Yeah. Superman, you know, Born Jefferson is Black Lightning, but I think he's still evolving. I think, I think he, he's at a point in his life where. He has to decide, am I going to be a more local character or am I going to try to become one of those kind of new pantheon characters of, of the Justice League? Yep. Right. Like, am, do I think that in my future I'll look at Diana Prince and see equal I'm there, with you. right? Absolutely, I have that yeah. stature, right? Is, is that my future? I don't really know. So uh, Bruce – sees that, I think, in him, sees a guy that's trying to figure out what his path is going to be. And uh, in, in, you know, in, in the story now, we have Jefferson in Metropolis. That's where he's from. That's right. where he's working Suicide out Slum. of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and I don't even know if they even specify that it's Suicide Slum anymore. That's, forgive me, that's the 70s reader in me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's the same area. I don't know if it has the same moniker, right? right Things right. change over time. Um, but, you know, when you're in a city with Superman, it's, it's easy to kind of lose your part in this whole game um, because he you're in a city with one of the most powerful superheroes right. ever, yeah. you know. So Batman sees a lot of potential in Jefferson. And I think he he in my mind, when when Batman's world starts to tremble, he likes to find places where he can exert control, where he feels like, okay, well, this is terra firma for me. And I, I, I saw the story kind of like a reflection of what Tom was doing. Like while his personal life is going through this turmoil, I think he's like, I need to, I need to find a situation where I know what's going to go on, right? Where I kind of, I can predict what will happen, where I can sculpt and I can mold because that is, I think, part of his nature. Uh, uh, Bruce's nature is to try to sculpt and mold people and try to lead people towards what he thinks their best potential is. And that that relationship between him and Jefferson is really interesting to me. I'm having a lot of fun uh, kind of playing around with that and exploring that. Good conversations, absolutely. Um, and uh, again, I, I you know, I'm a, I'm a huge Black Lightning fan and I love the television show. Uh, and, it, mm. and it really, all it did was reinforce that original... Tony Isabella, Trevor Von Eden run for me because again it was it sure. really was man it was it was really one of my favorite late seventies books and I was really happy when he made it to the Outsiders but I missed his solo stories and would you say yeah. then 
so he is obviously a younger Black Lightning yes. in the comics, obviously, and not and you know because there really is this Dark Knight Returns vibe in in the TV show. In the TV show, yeah, he's a veteran. He's like a veteran oh, yeah. returning to form. Yeah, and it, and it really, show. I mean, sure. God, especially in those early episodes where he's feeling every every sore moment of being back in action and stuff, and he's, you know, this middle-aged guy that's like, oh, man, this ain't like what it was when I was in my 20s. Right, it's going to take a, take a, it's like me when I started, I tried to start drinking again, and I was like, ooh. <laughs> it's going to take me a week to recover from last night. Exactly, oh. I'm with you, that's hilarious. But yeah, so it's, no, it's great, and I do like that they are, again, and I guess with the benefits of Rebirth, it is kind of a reintroduction of this relationship between Bruce and uh, and Jeff. And I loved also early on uh, Martian Manhunter even acknowledging uh, Jefferson's potential and everything and being like, well, you know, obviously, yeah, the League knows how good he is, and, you know, we want him to. And, yeah. and that was a great scene. I liked, I liked how you were able to, as opposed to initially, you know, like he even says at the beginning, you know, I called for Superman, and it's like, yeah, Bruce, I can handle this. What What do you need? <laughs> well, you need you need a, a good Bruce jerk moment in in the first book, right? You just need one of those like I called Clark. <laughs> like, there's just there's just no. It's not a Batman story unless I get one good scene where Bruce is kind of being a jerk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> super important, right? Absolutely. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, and it's it, you know. Like, it's really, it's really a story, yes, about Bruce dealing with this villain who wants to peel away everything he thinks that makes Batman weaker. But, you know, simultaneously, it's about Bruce seeing that the people he cares for might be in good hands working with someone else. And that um, he is a good mentor, but he's not a teacher. He's not, he doesn't have a bedside manner and he knows it. And I think he looks at these people and says... They need someone who can be a little closer to what what they're going through and isn't always preaching from the from the horse saddle, you know, yeah. isn't always handing down commandments from the mountain, right? And uh at, at you know, and Jefferson sees these people as traumatized people. You know, that's yeah. his first thought is, oh, well, you guys have all suffered through some bad stuff and this is why you do this. I work with kids who have gone through some bad stuff. Now, you guys aren't children, but uh, I think the first thing he sees is the, the questions like, are, are, are you balanced? Are you happy? Like, what's going on with you guys? You know, and that uh, that dynamic, I think, makes makes that sort of kettle a really interesting brew of stuff. Tell me your tell me your opinion of Duke. We've talked about Barbara. We should talk about Duke and Orphan as well. Yeah, well, you know, I I. I have a pretty bad thing happen to Duke in the first issue of the arc. Yeah. You know, he gets blown out of yeah, a window. Yeah, he does. <laughs> um, saving that kid who loves who loves Batman. Yeah, trying to save that kid. Um, and I, you know, I, I Duke. I don't think Duke yet fully understands the life he's chosen for himself. You know, I I think he is he has more scars to collect and more bruises I hear you. Uh, yeah. that need to heal. So. With him, I wanted I wanted him to live in a place of of consequence, you know, uh, and and you know he, he comes uh, sort of back into the story in the uh, the final issue of the story. Um, he has some moments there, cool. but you know I think for me heroes always get put through a crucible. You know I'm I'm a I'm a mythologist, John. Like I 
I firmly believe in the Campbellian monomyth, you know, in that hero's journey, that structure, uh, that the the hero that suffers and overcomes and, and goes through all of that. So with Duke, it was uh, it was important to me to kind of give him uh, kind of a, a serious knock. I mean, in a lot of ways, Karma is kind of the first of his his rogues gallery, right? Like, you know, you could interpret it that way. Sure, uh, definitely. And Duke. Duke could see that guy like, well, this is the guy that he heard me, you know, this, this is mine, this one. And uh, again, you know, I only have five issues uh, for this, for this story, but there's stuff definitely to play with, I think, in the future. And one of the things that I like to do when I'm coming in working on continuity is leave the house in an interesting place for the next guy. I'm with you. Know? you. No, <laughs> you know? that's great. Like, so, so yeah, so that's, that's what I think could be an interesting journey for him to, um, sort of deal with the consequence of what happened, how he has to get past, you know, whatever fears might be be there, kind of find his confidence again um, and realize, like, okay, I'm on that Dick Grayson path. I'm on that Bruce Wayne path. And how are they living their lives? Because I can look at Dick and I can see my near future. I can look at Bruce and I can see my far future. Or maybe I can look at, you know, Jason's yes. gravestone, <laughs> well, or Jason, or yeah, Jason with the Joker right. and and uh, Dick with right. uh, Dick with um, Harvey Dent. You know, Darvey always yeah. called him the boy hostage, and I know that that was right. always an interesting little nugget for Nightwing writers to play with when when Nightwing would face Two Face, and the same thing with Jason and the Joker and stuff. And it's like, yeah, we got unresolved business, and and certainly yeah, after yeah. after being resurrected and being redded and stuff. So, would you say then that Orphan is obviously that kind of middle ground sidekick who has you know, seen seen more miles than uh, than Duke has, but not as many, obviously, as Barbara. Well, yeah, I think Orphan is almost like limitless potential, you know, as a character. Cassandra Cain um, means a lot to me. I I remember reading, I think it was Silent Night, uh, that was uh, uh, Damien Scott and Kelly Puckett's uh, work in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Or not. not was it I think 90s? it was – well, it might have – actually, you're right. It may, maybe it was uh, early 2000s at that point. Could have been like late 90s or early early aughts. Yeah, because um, it was around No Man's Land time around yeah, – right. Yeah, around No Man's Land time. And, you know, I, I'm a firm believer in redemption. I'm a firm believer in in nurture over nature. And she's a nurture over nature character. You know, she's a character that comes from circumstances where she was meant to be something else. And – had to figure out her own path. Mm-hmm. You know, what What do I do with the power that was given me, even though the power that was given me was given to me for bad reasons? Yeah. You know, and and all that really appeals to me. So, you know, for Cassandra, it's, it's a journey of her kind of figuring out, okay, I think I'm no longer afraid of becoming the bad me. Right. I think after James's work with her, all the business he'd been doing and the good, good, good storytelling he'd been doing, her relationship with Clayface and, and all that, I think Cassandra has put some of those fears behind. And now she's thinking, of, OK, well, well, who who am I? You know, because I don't want to be Barbara. Not that I dislike Barbara, but yeah. Barbara isn't me, you know, and I, and I can't be Bruce. So all of these characters, John, are in these kind of really interesting place because they're all – sort of forming still, you know, there, it's not a, it's not a group of veterans. Like when you put, you know, black lightning, uh, a Cassandra, you know, the signal, you know, they're all, 
these aren't these aren't characters who have done their trilogy already and now they're sort of settled into their TV spinoff. Right. right. No, I'm, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm totally like, with you. Yeah. Like they're you know they they could still grow and evolve yeah. in in really interesting ways and and that's you know what makes it electric for me as a writer when I'm kind of writing these interactions and thinking about where we can go. That's awesome, man. And I'm I'm psyched. We got one chapter left. And uh, it's coming out in just a couple of days as we as we drop this episode. So, and I, and I just want to thank every like I, I've gotten so much uh, just positive uh, energy from Batman fans. You know, people that had never heard of me before I wrote Detective, or some of them may have heard of me. You know, uh, but being the new guy coming in after someone like James who done work that really mattered for people. I was very worried about, you know, well, I hope I don't like anger all the Batman fans out here because <laughs> I'm doing is kind of stark and a little dark and whatever. And people have been so welcoming, you know, um, uh, the, the bat readership is, is a very unique thing. You know, we all love this world and we love this character. And, uh, I just want to thank everyone who's gone out and picked up a book and sent me a note online and uh, shared that book with other people. I really appreciate it. It's been a fantastic experience. Good to hear. And also, uh, obviously, loving Tom's story. That's why he comes back on Word Balloon every couple months to talk about it and check in. But I also am glad that unlike when, uh, and I, I don't mean to pick on past uh, regimes and the decisions they made, but like when you know uh, Superman was in Straczynski's hands and he was walking across America, it was tough to like write other Superman stories. It seemed, and the same thing with Batman and Wonder Woman was off limits because again it was in Straczynski's hands as well. And while Tom is telling his epic story, you're coming in with this fast action, you know, interesting story with a good villain and a straight up cool street Gotham story that also has these other actors in it. But it's still, you know, obviously still a very much a Batman story. And yeah, I think it's a great contrast in the best way of, okay, while you're, while you're enjoying the slow burn that Tom's doing, here's a good fast-paced five-issue story that Brian's doing. And, I, and that's, that's terrific, man. And again, I'm, I'm glad that you're getting that response. Because like I said, back in the Legends of the Dark Knight days, that was always the great thing about that. Was you'd always just, yeah, all right, yeah. you know, we're in for four or five issues, we're out. Here comes the next team and everything. Have they announced who's following you on Detective? I believe James Robinson is following oh, up with a Two-Face story that will be awesome because James is awesome. And, and, and James is and, always interesting when he tells uh, Two-Face stories, so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm looking that... forward to that. Two-Face is like my favorite villain. so I, uh... I understand, and I, he's one of my favorites as well. And I love, I was just saying with, I think it was with Denny, and I don't mean to keep name-dropping people, but that, that yeah. moment of clarity... In Batman and Robin, the Val Kilmer movie, and it's really the only great moment where Tommy Tommy Lee Jones is allowed to act for a second and not just be over the top, and he's right. and he's Harvey for a second, and I love that. I mean, and again, going back to James's old uh, the face the face uh, story arc that he did, where Batman trusted Harvey enough, trusted Two Face enough in terms of look, I got to be away. I need you to watch Gotham for me, and I know you're in there, Harvey. I know you can do this. And it, it is right. that great. And also in uh, Legend, you know, Dark Knight Returns as well. That's like that second issue. Is it the, No, maybe it's the first issue. Is it the first issue where he, uh, he you know, again, where, where Harvey's face the, is fixed? No, it's got to be the first. Yeah, I think, I think Harvey's face is fixed in the first, but I think he confronts Harvey in the second. Okay. And yeah. And just that conversation, again, because yeah. it, 
with Batman, it's always the villains that we that he regrets, and and you know again, it's just like Lex and and, uh, and Clark it, when it's allowed to you know be that they knew each other in Smallville, and it's like oh we used to be friends, we used to you know, and especially with Harvey and Bruce, it's like no we used to work together, man. I know I I know there's a good right. guy in in there somewhere, Harvey, and I and and that's the thing he's not he's not fooled by it, but it's just I I know it's a regret in the same way that you know Jason's death is a regret that he'll never erase. And that's what I think makes Bruce right. interesting. And, and again, it's these kind of characters that can, you know, at least that's my point of view as far as Two-Face goes. What's your point of view? For I sure. Two-Face? Well, <laughs> well, I agree with, with all of that, John. You know, I mean, it, 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 all the Bat villains represent an aspect of Batman. And Two-Face is literally the war between order and chaos inside of one guy. Yep. You know, it's it, it, it's a sudden bifurcation of self, right? Batman himself, Bruce Wayne, had a slow and controlled bifurcation. But Harvey, it all happened at once. Yep. You know, and it, it all happened in adulthood. And uh, I think Bruce can identify with that that element of, of the psychosis, you know, yes. and certainly he feels responsible for the circumstances that created Harvey. And there is a good man in there somewhere, um, you know, and I think it's important for Bruce to believe that part of Harvey is there and can be saved. I think it matters to him. Yeah. You know, he's, he can't just file him away uh, with the Joker and, you know, the Riddler and, and Mr. Zaz and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Like, no, and it will. Uh, Dark Knight Returns when he says, have a good look, Batman, see what I really am. And he's like, I see a reflection, Harvey. And that's the thing right. is he's the dark side of what could happen when you're faced with that kind right. of trauma. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a good fable about, you know, kind of, um, what extreme experience can create in the individual and um, how trauma manifests in different ways for, for different people, karma, you know? You and, could, and so you could say that about karma as well, obviously. Right. And, in, 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 and I was thinking a bit about Dent uh, when I was uh, coming up with karma and like coming up with his details, um, you know, and, and I think in the third issue we see that karma was a gun runner and yep. uh, Batman hit him with a kind of, watered down version of Jonathan Crane's fear <laughs> gas. Yep. That was um, great. <laughs> and sort of left him there in, in the, and the bats the, picked him the, apart. The, Gross. <laughs> yeah. The bears of Markovia when the bats came for him, you know, and, and I, people, people online gave me a little bit of trouble. They're like, man, that's a really savage thing for Batman to do. <laughs> and I was thinking, yes, but it's also a little bit in Batman's past. Like, we don't know when that was happening. We don't know the circumstances that led up to it. And a moment of extremity is all it takes. Agreed. You know, that's it. Agreed. And I also think that unlike Superman and that Man of Steel reaction that a lot of us had, and I'll admit I'm one of them as well, uh, although again, sure. it was in his past, as Jerry Ordway reminded me recently. But um, no, I think I think you're right. And, I th- and again, uh, you can only look to things like Dark Knight Returns, where it's like, no, Batman can get pretty cold when he needs to and when he wants to. And, yeah, and, and I mean, again, Frank he Miller... didn't even realize the consequences of his actions. So you can say that, yeah, maybe an older Batman probably wouldn't have done that. But then again, it's I thought it was consistent. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the 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 combination of the fear toxin and the transmitter that would bring the bats to the target. You know, I look at it like, well, maybe the bats got a got a whiff of that fear toxin. <laughs> Good sure. <laughs> and maybe maybe they were a little crazed, you know. I mean, animals have have a, their own kind of psychology, so maybe it just got a little out of hand. And and 
there's a uh, there's probably a reason why we haven't seen Batman return to that gas. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> you know, there's yeah, probably well, probably a reason why even the the Man of Fear decided, yeah, that might be too much, you know, like uh, uh, for me. Um, and I, I love the idea of consequence. I love the idea of choices you make kind of coming back to haunt you in the present and how do you keep those choices from destroying your future and all of that. And, uh, karma is kinetic, uh, confident, violent, intense, but also kind of tragically pathetic in a lot of ways, you know, like, uh, he, he needs the animus with Batman, um, because he refuses to believe that the person that left him there in Markovia all those years ago is just a guy that could have people that cares about him and takes care of the city. Like in order to, to buoy his own sense of self and greatness, he needs his, his enemy um, to be something way more than that, you know, something way more than a man. And he refuses to say, well, this relatable human being in a bat suit, you know, found me and broke me. No, no, I was broken by a legend. I was broken by a leviathan that came out of the dark, and I will accept no substitute. And I must transform you back into what you were because that is what I deserve as a nemesis. You know, and and yeah. no, I get that. And also, by the same token, his name is Karma, and it is. It's you know, as Batman realizes, I created this. It's my problem. Yeah, and Karma, you know, in in one of his, he's a very mellifluous individual this guy right he's a guy that you just want to punch him in the face and tell him to shut up that's intentional uh, yeah. <laughs> so but in in that you know he does talk about how i got what i deserved right and so that sense of of justice that sense of karma uh with the little k is where he's finding his identity yep. because after something horrible happens to us uh that transforms us in a permanent way that will alter you know every moment we have uh from that point we got to figure out what what we're all about right you've got to figure out what you what the meaning of your existence is what your life is because it can't be what it was before you know if he was a gun runner that was making money doing horrible things to people but then he would take the money and spend it in the french era well you can't do that anymore because now you've got face problems (laughs) right So all of that, you know, all of that, like summer's off, you know, winter's on kind of mercenary life you had, that's over. What do you do? And I think he just sat in a place and thought about deserving and and who deserves what and why did he deserve this? And maybe he'll be that force in the world, you know, not a hero or even an anti-hero, but literally he sees himself as a force that gives people what they deserve. Uh, um, And the first person he wants to kind of visit with that notion is Batman himself. Good story, man. Absolutely. And uh, looking forward to this uh, last chapter. And uh, yeah, I I really like the various elements of the Batman mythos that you're able to throw in. Uh, Because again, we're part part of the story. And I think you explain it well enough, too, for for a newbie, uh, as far as, you know, as as Bruce was kind of figuring everything out, bringing back Markovia, bringing back uh, the League Mm. of Assassins, and, and, you know, just everything that uh, Jonathan Crane's gas. I, I think these are all great elements. And again, I think you've created a very, very cool, fast action story that uh, there's a lot of character in there as well, and and good interplay. And like I said, I, I, you know, you don't have to confirm or deny it, but it just seems to me that there are just too many outsiders uh, elements in in this story that something isn't going on. And I have a feeling we might hear an announcement in in the months to come. And if you're involved, that I mean, I, I hear there's. 
there's these similarities between this and this this thing called the Outsiders. Um, that's what they tell me that there's a thing. That, I, don't know, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. Right. I guess you got to ask Dan DiDio about that or something. Maybe he knows what they're talking yeah, about. I, I mean, no I idea. write everything inside, right. so I, I don't know why everyone says outside. Outside, I do all of my writing inside. Um, <laughs> you know, that's that's what I do. Now I'm killing myself that I didn't read, uh, and I will, and for our next conversation, which I hope there will be in the yeah. future, we'll talk about sure. uh, Black Lightning and Hong Kong Fui, because I bought it. Oh yeah, for sure, Absolutely. for sure. No, and I and I'm I'm hoping. Tell me at least this much without spoiling. Is it set in the seventies? Oh, for sure. Excellent, fantastic. I mean, I saw the has to be. I saw the big hair on the cover, so I. I assumed this was. Oh, it's got to be. Okay. Yeah, you're damn right it does. Absolutely. I love, hey man, again, I loved them both in the 70s. And I keep saying this. This is a re- recurring theme. I was talking to Steve Orlando last night because uh, he did the Martian Manhunter and Marvin the Martian. Um, all those yeah. all those Hanna-Barbera things exceeded expectations. And, I, and I'm looking forward to reading your story because, really, I, when, I, when I heard it, I'm like, all right, whatever. I'm sure that'll be cute. And uh, right. and then I read them, and the ones I've read, and I'm just like, oh my god, these are these are fantastic. Tom's was great. Humphreys did a great job with the Legion of Bugs Bunny, and uh, yeah. you know, I mean, again, Orlando did a great job with uh, Marvin and and uh, and John. Uh, I no, I think I think it's great. And yeah, once I saw that it was Black, Black Lightning and Hong Kong Fu, I grabbed it immediately. And then reading your story, I'm like, oh wait a minute, Brian wrote that, didn't he? God damn it! And I didn't have time to read it before we talked. And I'm like. Uh, all right, we'll we'll talk. Well, about that was a really time. funny thing. Like, so I've been working with Marie Javins on Michael Cray, which is the Wildstorm. Yes, and I wanted to ask uh, about that. Go on, go on. Uh, so you know, Marie and I have been working on that. Um, it, it was always original. It going to be a twelve issue thing. So um, you know, we, we've been kind of going back and forth working on that. And Marie was also editing a lot of these crossovers, or at least like kind of gathering them. Okay. And I missed the first round, but I asked her like, "What's up with Hong Kong Fui?" And she looked at me, and she's like, 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 that was the most radioactive of them all, right? Like, because, you know, there's a little kitsch there, some cultural kitsch with him and the kung fu and the rest of it, and a lot of potential landmines and stuff in in the age of Twitter that have, right? And I was like, yeah, 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 but no, we got to lean into all that. Like, (laughs) trust me, I I know what I'm doing. It's going to be cool. No one's going to get mad. It's going to be awesome. We're going to, like, John Carpenter, Big Trouble in Little China, this thing. It's going to be fantastic. Excellent. Um, Very cool. So she's like, all right, well, that's insane, but I'll put it in my back pocket and we'll see. And then, um, like, like, months later, Jim Chadwick emails me. He's like, hey, man, you still want to do that Hong Kong Fui Black Lightning thing? And I'm like, yeah, you bet. Uh, So I met with Dan about it, and I I turned in something, and he's like, you know, Brian, this just isn't absurd enough. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was being, I was, I was playing it a little careful because I didn't, you know, I hadn't had a lot of conversation with Dan at the time. But when I, when I met with him in his office, he had a kung fu movie playing in his office, cool. like some deep cut Shaw Brothers thing I'd never seen before. Gotcha. And we just start, you know, kind of just talking about like jive turkeys and suckers for a second. And I was like, oh, Dan's family. Okay, I'll give him the real story. So then I went back and like retooled it and like put the ideas in that I wanted to put in there and gave it to him and he liked it. And, and Dennis uh, Cowan came in to do the art Amazing. with Bilson Kevich, which is incredible. Yeah. Like to for a guy that reads Electra Assassin probably once a month. That's great. Who studies Cowan's work uh, on the question? Loved often. Absolutely. Right. Yes, indeed. 
to be able to say that you wrote something and you got to work with both Bill Sienkiewicz and Dennis Cowan is insane. Like that's like an insane thing. That's like getting you know De Niro and Pacino in your movie, but you're not Michael Mann. You're just some guy. I'm with you, right? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're just some dude directing a movie and legends, right? So it was a lot of fun. It's very seventies. It's very kung fu film. You know, it's. It's it's a little touch of Tarantino in there, most likely, but uh, but yeah, yeah, it was a really really fun ride. Brian, isn't it great? It's truly now, and forgive me, but I am going to break it down that it's a white guy and a black guy talking about Asian culture. But wasn't it wonderful sure. being young and that all of us really loved the kung fu world of the seventies and the Shaw Brothers, and and really, oh, yeah. I mean honestly, I, and I I appreciate everyone standing up and representing for their culture. And I think that that's important. I genuinely, and again, I, I'm sure I sound condescending when I say this, but I also miss. The, it, I talked about this with Reggie Hudlin regarding Power Man and Iron Fist, and it's like, mm. and and also too Sanford Green as well when he when he was drawing it with uh, with Dave Walker, and it's like, isn't it great that like when they came, when that book came out, these were just guys that genuinely loved each other, and it was like, fine, and they were and they were in the midst of this kind of, you know, uh, again, martial arts culture. And it was just like, hey, we all thought it was cool. Nobody was trying to rip off Bruce Lee, per se. Well, I guess maybe the producers might have been. Maybe, maybe, maybe sure. some of the well, producers Well, a, a lot of it is, you know, I there are so many forces out there right now that want to convince us that other people mean us harm. And there, there's an economy built around selling that idea to people. Yeah, and yeah. We don't trust intention anymore. We always assume that a person did something and their intentions had to be nefarious in some way. Like we start off viewing each other as villains and then we have to prove to each other that we're not villains. And that's creating a lot of strife and acrimony uh, um, that I don't think is particularly helpful, you know. And obviously – I mean like I'm I'm black, you know, so I certainly – don't want anyone to feel like they can't do a thing because of, you know, what race they are, religion, creed, gender, what have you for certain. And I'm, I'm certainly not a fan of discrimination or, or, or exploitation in that way. Um, uh, but you know, simultaneously I do, I do worry a bit that we ascribe the worst of intentions to every action. And we tend to, to judge people based on the worst thing that they've said or done. And, uh, we can't have a society that functions properly if we just assume villainy all of the time, you know. And and uh, we, we didn't used to do that, yeah. you know. It, it, it you know it used to be you could sort of take things, uh, you know, prima facie as, as what it is without being so concerned about the machinations behind the thing. And are you do you mean this? You mean that? It's funny, like you know, you're watching a movie like Blazing Saddles or something. You can't even write that script now. Hell yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> right? Like if you if you write Blazing Saddles now, you will get run out of Hollywood. Well, have you, <laughs> right? As being someone in the television world, I'm sure you're aware that they're talking about rebooting All in the Family. And I'm like, good fucking luck. <laughs> and even though that Norman, Norman Lear's doing it, it's like, good yeah. luck. Good luck. I, mean, I, I mean, that show is in, incredible in its frankness and its audacity. And, and yes, some people read it wrong. But I think most of us read it right, and it's again, yeah, it's it's a shame. I just think again, and forgive the editorial, everybody. We'll get off it soon. 
but but yeah, I just it's it is. It's just you're right. I agree. And totally, Blazing Saddles is a classic example of that. Well, I have a I have a Vertigo book coming out uh, this me. fall. Uh, I think it's um uh, is it October November? It might be November. It's called American Carnage. Okay. And it's part of the 25th anniversary of Vertigo. This line of books that's coming out, and the elevator pitches. It's about a uh, half black FBI agent um, who can pass for white that goes undercover into white supremacist organizations in California to find the possible murderer of an FBI agent. And it's really a story about how a person goes into a situation thinking he's going to find one thing and then sees like all these different sort of strata and ambitions and interpersonal conflicts and dimensionalized people. Uh, and I call it like, you know, like white supremacist Game of Thrones. Right. So okay. <laughs> uh, but but that's a book where uh, it's, I, you know, I talk to Andy Curry uh, all the time. He's my editor uh, on the book. Okay. And. And I'm like, I, you know, they might yell at you about this book, Andy. <laughs> and I'm like, it's, you know, it's gonna be okay. Um, but that's like one of those. That's one of those projects, right? Where you know, uh, I because I am a black man writing that story, I think people will sort of read it in a different way, right? They'll read it like, well, he's obviously not one of these guys. Sure. But I do, I do worry we're in a world where if a white person were to write that story, you might wonder if he believed what the antagonist believed, right? Sure. Like, and and that's that's a dangerous um, a place to be, you know. And um, I, I I do believe that most people are good. I I do think that we don't want to to hate each other and hurt each other. I did two years of research talking to white supremacists for that comic book, and wow. um. The interesting thing would happen, John, is at first you would get the bullet points, the pamphlets, sure. the Turner Diaries, what have you, you know, the 14 words, all that. And once they saw that they couldn't trick you with a slur, that you weren't trying to set them up, you know, that you were just trying to listen to find out how they got to the place they are right now, uh, you could see that the hate start to fall away. I'm not saying I converted anybody or had anyone leave a movement. That certainly didn't happen. But... I would see people catching themselves just talking to me and then realizing that they had to put on their airs again. Understood. Right? Yeah, yeah. And then that's when you realize, like, oh, there's daylight here. <laughs> there's a little daylight. I mean, not everyone. Some people, like, just, you know. But uh, with with a lot of people, it's like, oh, there's a little daylight here. Yeah, like, there's there's a thing. And so, yeah, you know, it's – um. Uh, I just, uh, I just, you know, for, for people that are out there, you know, kind of dealing with the climate as it is, just it's – Let's not confuse comfort with safety. Um, they are not the same thing. Uh, we we should have a society where where the most people possible are safe, but I do not think we need a society where the most people possible are comfortable. I like it. All right, I get it. Now I have to ask you, obviously, and I had no idea that the story was coming. Uh, mm. What you know? Were you like, oh, son of a bitch, that Spike is doing Black Klansman at the uh, at the same time? Or no, 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 not at all. Actually, okay. because by Klansman is is uh, set in the seventies, I believe. Yes, it is. So it's like the seventies, and it's the South, and it's David Duke, Louisiana, and it's based yeah, on a true yeah, story. Yeah. yeah, you're right. Um, yeah. All of that stuff. Like what I'm doing is now, um, and I really wanted to do this story in a blue state, right? I didn't Good point. because I feel like yeah. there's so many stories that happen in the Midwest and you're happening in the South and the whole thing, Mason Dixon and all that. I really wanted to deal with something that was more in like a blue state because California has a lot of different kind of aspects to it and it's unexplored in that way. And there's, 
idea this this liberal bastion of just permanent blue, and that's just not true at all. So if anything, um, I mean, I guess if my book was coming out like this Wednesday, I'd be a little irritated, but uh, because Spike's movie is hitting earlier, you know, like – it, 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 he he's starting a conversation with that movie that can dovetail directly into the work that I'm doing in the comic totally. book. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, no, I get it. I, uh, yeah, it's yeah, that's great. It's it's funny. I, I I didn't even really I didn't really know about the movie until I was like done with like the second issue of the script, and I was like, oh, okay, cool, right on. Like that'll that'll facilitate things. It's not it's not the kind of concept like an asteroid is going to crash into Earth, what do we do? Right? We're not in like a deep impact Armageddon situation. <laughs> yes, indeed. Isn't that funny? We're making just the same thing right across the street. All right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, like it's not quite that kind I'm of thing, you. so That's great. No, and you're right. Good there. lord. You know, I I really wasn't going to watch OJ Made in America cuz I'm like Hey man, I was and I was you know working in sports. Did you want radio. to go through that again? Well, yeah, two things. Well, and again, you know, I still haven't watched the FX dramatization, The People versus OJ, but I did watch Made yeah, in yeah. America, and again, it was for the same. And it's going to sound ridiculous because of the comparison, but it was the same thing when the movie Moneyball came out, where I'm like, you know, I'm I was working in sports radio, and we were dealing with OJ as it was happening. We dealt with Moneyball. As it was happening. Right. And I'm like, I don't need to see even a documentary. I remember. And then, as you say, California is, despite it being a blue state, it's not one unified frame of mind. And I think Made in America really made that point very clearly. And I thought, you know, so, yeah, it's I'm I, that sounds ambitious and really cool. And I'm glad you're exploring that. Well, it's a it's a cool crime story, John. Like, I, you know, I, I was talking to Mark Doyle over at Vertigo about how my vertigo was uh, scalped. Amen. 100 bullets. Yes. Like, that was my vertigo, yep. right? Everyone has their own vertigo. I mean, I love Sandman, sure. and Neil Gaiman's a genius, and all of that, for sure. And I was a huge fan of Hellblazer. You know, John Constantine sure. is one of my favorite characters. So, like, I did love all of that visionary, kind of magical realism work that was being done. But for me, like, 100 bullets and, and scalped, like, those books are revelations for me. That that Those were things that really mattered. And... I tell people that American Carnage isn't a book about politics. I mean, there's some political stuff in the book because of the milieu of the book, for sure. But it's it's really a crime story. It's about power and ambition. You know, it's it's a, you have a character who is uh, lost in the beginning of the story, who has a very particular talent to be able to get uh, close to people, to get people to trust him, and he goes into a situation where he might find the kind of power in that situation that he can't find in the, the quote unquote normal world. And how does that affect him? You know, and how does he move through that and where his alliances remain? Right. And it's, it's, you know, it questions the idea of biological identity, you know, uh, is philosophical identity more important because that's the identity you choose, you know, and, um, and all of, all of that stuff, like that's, that's the thing. And this, someone was yelling at me, or not yelling at me, but someone, you know, uh, like tweeted at me and they were like, well, it's just like a diatribe against all like Trump, you know, voters. And I was like, no, it's got white supremacists in it. I don't think they're all white supremacists. <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 like, it's like, unless you're a white supremacist, you'll probably enjoy the narrative. And if you are, you still might. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's it's 
It's it's like people are so ready for something to come out and be attacking them. Yes, is this that about I have to me? calm a few people down. <laughs> yeah, Isn't and be like, crazy? no, I'm not attacking anybody. This is a crime story. Like, I can't, you know, the the Italian mob is played out. Can't do that. Fair enough. You know, like, yes. uh, I just wanted to find a milieu that was interesting. And um, Kurt Sutter had gotten to bikers first, so <laughs> <laughs> I chose this. That's cool. You you know you're right because even as something as harmless as the big bang theory are you talking about me and it's like calm down right if you see that yeah, in yourself, yeah. take a second look in there and that might be more a statement about yourself than the fiction but yeah man. well that's why i try to be really positive online i mean if anyone follows me on twitter you know i don't get into arguments with people i i i don't i don't try to promote the acrimony and right. i try as hard as i can to be patient and answer questions honestly and and, and talk to people because uh you know, I just want to try to kind of stop the culture of escalation that we have as much as I can. Yeah. And so if people read something and, and, and something stark happens, you know, in the book, you're like, whoa, like in Detective, you know, uh, in one of the previous issues, you know, a reporter gets set on fire. And, you know, you could look at that as, what's well, that misogynist? You know, you know, you know, what's that all about? Well, hopefully, if you just look at me on social media and you see how I interact with people, you realize like, Oh, he doesn't actually want to set women on fire. This is a bad guy doing bad guy things. Yeah. I understand. Dude, I understand. But again, you know, it's like middle-aged white guy. So I'm, I'm, you know, wrong. I'm, I'm wrong to begin with. And uh, that's okay. That's all right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, it's really, you know, it's, it's not as bad as it looks. It's like, you know, Nixon talked about his his silent majority. I think there's a silent majority of people that uh, are just kind of living their lives, yeah. man, and trying to do the best they can out here. Absolutely, you know? yes, exactly. I'm just trying to get through the day. Exactly, I agree with you. You're just trying to get through the just, just get through the day. It's kind of true. You know? I mean, that's well, I agree. <laughs> I think that's the majority, man. The day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, for real. So, so that for sounds real. great, and I and definitely another reason to come back and, and and have a future conversation about that. But now, again, another book that sadly I'm not reading. I got to be honest, I'm not a Wildstorm guy. I love Sleeper and everything yeah, behind yeah. Sleeper. But tell me about Michael Cray because I want a I want to know what I'm missing, and maybe you know it's funny. Again, talking to Steve Orlando, I wasn't reading the uh, Doom Patrol JLA Milk Wars, and he told me about what was going on, and I'm like. I'm going to be buying Milk Wars, and I will be <laughs> will be catching up on that. So tell me about Michael Cray and what who is For he sure. in the Wildstorm universe? I don't I don't know the name. Well, so Michael Cray is a character that most people know as Deathblow. Oh, okay. Oh, and, okay. Great. I do know. I remember the crossover with Batman. Uh, that uh, yeah, you know, hired killer, that type of yeah, guy, yeah, professional yeah. assassin, all. That. And so Warren wanted to do a – Michael Cray had appeared in Warren's main Wildstorm title, which is really about – like it's, it's very Warren. You know, It's about uh, clandestine operations and the control of technology and people killing to keep secrets and, and all of that uh, – all that stuff, okay. all that great, rich Warren Ellis stuff. And Michael Cray was a character uh, – is a character in the Wildstorm universe and uh, had been reinvented a bit in Warren's uh, – uh, main Wildstorm run and he wanted to spin that off into a 12 issue miniseries okay. so I hadn't met Warren I didn't really know him and I, I think we might have followed each other on Twitter or something but you know I hadn't really had a conversation with him um, but Marie knew him well and uh, I think Marie suggested me to Warren Warren read Postal and Romulus cool. I think and was like yeah yeah this guy is interesting you know I, you know he can he can do some things there and 
so I spoke to Warren about it, and Warren, I was like, well, you know, I, I want to have him hunt and kill twisted versions of the Justice League. Fun. And I was like, and Dan and Jim know about this. <laughs> <laughs> like, just to make sure. Different, different than the Authority? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, different. Yeah, okay. like, it's, I mean, because these are actually named as such. Because the Wildstorm doesn't take place in the DC universe. It's a kind of its own universe. Yeah. Okay. The, you get your own Oliver Queen, you get your own, you know, Barry Allen, you get your own Diana Prince, you get your own John Constantine, but they are very similar to their incarnations in the DCU, but they're, they're all sort of twisted. Like something went wrong okay, sure. on the way, you know, um, um, they, they were walking the path of righteousness and something that fell and landed on the slope of the wicked. So, uh, they they are these like kind of distorted versions of these characters, and beyond that, you know, one was like, yeah, just go ahead and do what you want. So it's 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 a story that I think gets crazier every issue, and it gets crazier because I get more confident every issue. So you know, it, for when it starts off, you you know, see Michael Cray, assassin, you know, soldier. He has an alien in his head that's. Uh, trying to take over his life and gives him the power to touch things and make them disintegrate. Uh, and he's hunting people um, because he's been assigned to do that by this clandestine organization run by a woman named Christine Trelane. Okay. Uh, who promises to help Michael with the affliction in his brain, in his mind, uh, in exchange for hunting and killing these nefarious people around the world. It's sort of like become our agent by coercion is the situation that Michael is gotcha. in. Gotcha. Okay. But – as it continues to go on, it just gets nuttier and nuttier. And the uh, the first trade just came out um, in that you've got evil Green Arrow, evil Barry Allen, uh, evil Aquaman, things like that happening in there. And all of the stories are kind of their own little genres, little mini genres. Sure. Uh, you know, from traditional sort of superhero type antics to a Lovecraftian kind of horror short story set in a fishing town in New Zealand that believes it's being protected by someone they call the Aquaman. Very good. Very <laughs> right? good. You know, like things like sure. that, right? But in the final uh, six, the second half of the story, we get an evil Diana Prince. And I, I would say an evil John Constantine, but I'll probably just say John Constantine. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we, get, we get John Constantine after five bad days in a row, right? Okay, okay. So, and... And we start to deal with um, magic and and uh, the potential reality of it and the line between science and magic and cool. what is really inside of Michael. Is it a consciousness? Is it spirit? Is it alien? What is it? And, and gets a little almost metaphysical and philosophical, you know, kind of brushes up, dare I say, against some Grant Morrison kind of ideas. Uh, yeah, and it's just this incredibly nutty, hyper-violent um, – pulpy but hopefully thoughtful tale about a man with uh, another thing in his mind that has to kill the most powerful people in the world you know well, um, that's the best way i can describe that it. sounds great that sounds very planetary in the best way it, yeah so, for sure yeah, it definitely because, has yeah, those shades yeah all right because yeah that's what like i said i started with oh maybe you're going after the authority i'm like wait a minute this sounds more like planetary in a in a good way so is the first is the first trade like is the twelve issues? Are they two stories that complement each other, or is it one twelve issue story? It's it's a it's a one twelve issue story that's been separated that will be separated into two trades. Yeah. It's still in monthlies now. So the last issue, I think I think the latest issue dropped 
this Wednesday, 10. So, oh, we're almost done. Uh, okay, wow. Yeah, you've got you've got 11 and 12. This one doesn't ship bi-monthly. It ships monthly, so okay. um, we've got a couple more months on it. Um, but the first volume of the first six is already out there, okay. so people can go out there and pick up that trade uh, if they're curious about yeah. it. And uh, and I would suggest starting with the first issue. Well, sure. Um, because, you know, you kind of – everything – I layer a lot as a writer. Uh, so you'll get more out of it if you start from the beginning. Like, like if you if you like what I'm saying about Detective and you're listening to this, track down 983 and start there because you're just going to – you're going to get more out of it. If oh, you do absolutely. No question. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And yeah. yeah. And, and, and So, yeah. And, okay, well, that's, and that's great. great. Well, you know, and also I, I, I understand and, and certainly, you know, six issues fits a trade nicely. Um I do feel for you know people that buy a trade and go, oh wait a minute, this isn't the whole story as well. But I am intrigued, and honestly, I think uh, yeah, again, being a being a planetary fan, and also not realizing that Michael Cray is Deathblow, I'm like, wait a minute, okay, that's <laughs> he was one of the exceptions. Yeah, where I've read a few stories. Well, Warren's doing years. a really he's doing really interesting work with this new iteration of Wildstorm, and uh, it, it, I mean, again, it's like the it's like the Dennis Bill situation, y- you know. You just don't think like, oh, you know, I might work with Warren Ellis next year. Like, you don't think something like that's crazy. That's a crazy person's thought. You know, comics is the most insane entertainment industry specifically for that reason, because once you start doing things for the bigger companies, you are suddenly thrown into a scenario where you're sitting alongside people that you've like admired and and read their work and studied their work. And there's it's not really gradual. It's it. It, when it happens, it happens super quickly. I was just at San Diego Comic-Con. I'm sitting on a panel. I've got Joel on my right side. Cool. I've got Tom on my left side. I've got Peter next to Tom. Which Peter? You know, and uh, Tomasi. Oh, Pete Tomasi, sure. Because uh, Peter's going to take over after James. James is going to do another uh, uh, five issue, I believe, and then Peter takes over afterwards. For Detective, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you're like, well, what am I doing up on a on a panel with Tom King, Joel Jones, Peter Tomasi? Like, why am I here? <laughs> <laughs> what do I have to say? I should be down there, like raising my hand, stepping up to the mic, asking a question. Um, so the my journey in comics has been really surreal, John. Awesome. I mean, even to be here talking with you, oh, like I listen to your show, well, thank you, that's very and nice. to the people you speak to, and you're so good at what you do too. Well, that's um, very nice. I, I truly I appreciate so. that genuinely. And well, and again, that's great because. You know, this is all new, you know, re- relatively speaking, and especially working at DC. But I can tell you that, obviously, Bendis feels the same way about the various artists that he is working with. And, you know, there's a 20-year vet oh, sure. that's a you know, 25-year yeah. vet that's saying the same thing. And it's like, I can't believe I'm working with Artist X. And it's like, yeah, that's amazing. So oh, I was just at that DC Writers Summit that they did. And, uh, you know, you're in a room with with Bendis and Tom and Scott. And Kelly DeConnick, you oh know, and you're just like, whoa, this is this is a crazy room to be that's in. Like, that's great. <laughs> that's excellent. I mean, this is an insane room to be in. So um, I tell people like I, I fully intend to continue to, to write comics because I think I'm 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 only beginning to learn what I want to do in, in the form. You know, I'm so far from where I'd want to be. I'm really glad that people are getting entertainment value from I'm doing and and I do think that they are quality stories, but I'm also very cognizant of what can be accomplished in the craft and and how I want to you know strengthen and expand my skills. So I plan to continue to write comics, but I tell people all the time, if for some reason I couldn't write any more comics, 
I would be kind of satisfied with what I've been able to do so far. That's great. You know, like my inner 13 year old is elated, you know, like it's, it's, I feel like I'm living in the bonus round of life. That's now. great. Well, that's a good place to be, man. That's wonderful. That's great to hear. And, uh, again, I think your detective run is, uh, terrific. And, uh, yeah, I, there's, there's, there's a good catalog of Brian Edward Hill, uh, uh comics to go through. And I'm glad to hear that, you know, you want to continue and, and do more, but we're not done talking. I hope because I, I, I no, okay, good. no, I was just, yeah, I was having, I was having a sojourn <laughs> into self-reflective moment. I respect that. It's yes. I was, I was becoming, you know, wistful. <laughs> That's all good. That's all good. Well, I want to get back to TV first, before we talk about yeah. Titans, I'm interested in Ash versus evil dead. What kind of writing room? And I want you to compare the, the two writing rooms again, without, without getting into spoilery details. Oh yeah, for but, sure. Uh, yeah, tell, well, so, okay. so tell me about Ash and Evil Dead first of all. Was it like were you were you helping break the season, or are you going off and writing your story and it's tinkered with? How, how did it all work? Well, Mark liked had to have everyone in the room breaking story. You know, he, he likes to have us all there, you know, kind of firing off ideas. And if anyone's listening to this and doesn't really know what a TV writers' room is. So TV shows are generally written by groups of writers rather than one person. And the writers all meet Monday through Friday just like any other job. We go to a place and we just do what's called breaking story, which is figuring out the plot of the individual episodes, figuring out the the arc of the entire season, all of that. And everyone's sort of spit-firing ideas and they all go up to the board. And the showrunner is the person that decides – what will stay and what will go and kind of steers things in, in directions, almost like the captain of that squad. So it was, uh, you know, it was my first television thing and I'm, I'm pretty good at, at pretending I know how to do something until I know how to do okay. it. Like I am all right at that. You know, there was an old NBC show called the pretender. They used to call me that in NYU. <laughs> like, well, Brian will just pretend and, We'll get through it. So um, the first the first couple of weeks, I was just like, okay, I think I can pretend to be a TV writer until I catch on. But um, because we're working on Evil Dead, and I'm a horror fan, I'm a big horror fan. Like one of my bucket list checks is directing a horror film. Cool. So I'm a, a huge horror fan. I'm very familiar with Ash and all of that boomstick. Sure, you know. Sure. Uh, so I came in with a good knowledge of the material, and the uh, the great thing is Ivan Ramey was part of our writers' room. So me, we got, Ramey. you know, uh, who, who? I mean, Ra- Ivan Ramey is Sam Ramey's brother. Oh, of course. All right. Yeah. Shame on me. All right. Yeah. Was, uh, you know, yeah. yeah. Who's like, you know, wrote Dark Man, you know, wrote the Evil Dead stuff oh, with Sam, realize, like work with Sam. Wow, I didn't realize that. You know, I, I know his actor brother, Ted, of course. But yeah, I didn't. I, you know, Ted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, yeah, so all the Ramey's are kind of like hyper involved creatively. And Ivan was I think Ivan has a writing credit for Dark Man, I believe, the, among other things. Uh, so when you have Ivan in the room, you can literally ask a Ramey if if that's the universe, sure, you sure. know, you can, you can just turn over and be like, would Ash do that? And then Ivan would kind of tell you and it would be awesome. Um, it was just such a fun experience because it's such a fun character. It's a, it's a no pun intended, a devil may care world where you can do sort of whatever you want. Um, and so we were able to flex our imagination. So the tricky part, John, that show was in a half hour format, right. Yes, but it wasn't a sitcom. Right. So, you don't have a lot of pages for your story. I mean, if you have two action sequences, which generally every show did, you only really had maybe like 10 or so pages of character dialogue, just pure scene work to push the narrative forward, to push the plot forward and all that. So the efficiency 
was tricky, but that's where comics really helped me out because comics are, in my experience, the most efficient form of storytelling. Like, you know, if, if a novel is limitless words, you know, you can be Leo Tolstoy if you want right. to be. Uh, and the screenplay has m- many more rules than a novel, but uh, less rules than a, than a television episode of 60 pages. Then a comic book, you know, you've got 20 or 22 pages usually, and you probably don't want to go over five panels a page if you don't have to. And then you got a splash page, and you got to have a page before that and a page after that. So you've got to really make it all work. That experience was incredibly useful when I'm looking at having to tell what felt like 60 pages of story inside of a 20-something page script. Sure. So yes. uh, I saw the the relationship of forms when I was working there, and it was great. I met Lucy Lawless. Like I was just sitting in my little writer's room office one day, and I hear this New Zealand voice that speaks directly from like my you know my 2002 days, sure. <laughs> and and I turn around and Lucy Lawless is standing there, just you know looking awesome and Lucy Lawless because I don't think she can do anything but be awesome. And the first thing she asked me was, did I know where the pretzels were? <laughs> and that, that became a quest. That became <laughs> my, my reason to exist was finding pretzels for Lucy Lawless. Like I took the charge from my queen and I would bring her pretzels. And I did. And she said, thank you. And that was the, the best day I had in a long time. Um, I get it. You know, you, you you have to kind of backstroke through the surrealism of life sometimes, John. Like that's and that's that's what that was. So, uh, yeah, that was really cool. I didn't get to go to the production because that was New Zealand and oh, only uh, okay, they shot the, it down there. Yeah, the higher levels, like the upper levels, like Mark, Rob Fresco. You know, they went sure. down to observe production. I didn't. So uh, Bruce was never. But, yeah, Bruce Campbell was never in the room as far as writing and stuff. Bruce was Bruce had already gone to New Zealand okay. Um, okay. to prep for the season. Sure, sure. So Bruce, I never got to meet wow. Bruce. The season two guys met Bruce, but I never got to meet okay. Bruce. I met everyone else. I met Dana. I met met Ray. Cool. Uh, met Lucy. Um, and uh, that was yeah. I mean, I couldn't ask for a better first season of TV experience. But you you don't want your first season of television to be a liar, right? Like you know you you I think you want to kind of wade in with something where you can feel safe to experiment and make mistakes and, and all of that. You know, like I, I I'm glad my first season wasn't Westworld. Or, man, you know, or I hear you. Like you know, it's a it's heavy, yeah, right? It's man. heavy. I hear like a lot. <laughs> I know. Very um, nihilistic. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's like it's a lot. Like you gotta kinda know what you're doing when you when you do sure. that. Um yeah, so <laughs> that was it it was I learned a lot about, you know, ideation from how the other writers came up with ideas and I learned uh and how to be a better collaborator. It's made it easier when I work with artists on my comics, for sure. Like just being able to communicate your ideas. And uh, the Titans room was was different. Uh, it was still great. I mean, never had a bad day in the room. But you know, it's there. It's an hour long show. Okay. Um, yeah. In the room, we had our showrunner Greg Walker, uh, who has done you know years and years of awesome TV. X Files. Without a trace. X Files. What else? Like X Files. Without a trace. Sure. Uh, he extant. He did oh, some work sure. on, uh, you know, uh, some prestige stuff that Greg will be mad that I don't know. But he's an awesome cool. guy. And uh, Jeff Johns was in the room a lot of time. Uh, I mean, as much as we could get Jeff, you know, because uh, he was busy, like, you know, doing those 
$200 million Jeff Johns thing. I'm with you. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, he was in the room, like, breaking story. And, and to watch Jeff Johns go from a whiteboard to having a story broken, like, that's an education. That's like a, you know, 30-minute education. You will be a better storyteller just by watching him do that. And we got, we got to see that a few times a week. And then Akiva Goldsman was in the room, you know, who's wow. written – 40% of my Blu-ray collection. I'm with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> right? So it's, that, that's a pretty crazy room, right? Yeah. Um, and then we had other people like Gabrielle Stanton. You know, she'd uh, uh, ran Haven for a while on Sci-Fi cool. and had done tons of TV. Um, just, we just had like Richard Haddam. He's a good friend of mine now, you know, and he has written like, like everything from Steven Seagal movies to working on like, you know, Once Upon a Time and a bunch of stuff. Cool. So – uh, that it was just a really you know high energy environment, um, and we were in the Berlanti compound that exists here in L.A. where all the Berlanti shows kind of meet up. So I got to meet the Black uh, Lightning writers, got to meet the uh, Riverdale uh, writers, you know Arrow, Flash, Legends, they're all there, and yeah, it was a really interesting experience. And it didn't come, it didn't become concrete for me what we were really doing until I was in Toronto because I did get to go to production for this. Cool. And I was in there about six weeks because my episodes, I'd worked on two episodes, and those episodes wound up shooting back-to-back, strangely Oh, interesting. And so I was up in Toronto for a month and a half. And um, it really became, you know, crystal clear when Brenton Thwaites uh, came out in the Robin suit. (laughs) Uh, Because I, you know, I hadn't seen him in the suit. I'd seen pictures of the suit. You know, we we saw designs, and I think everyone's seen the uh, production uh, art now. Yep. Um, that's been well, on the trailer, of course. But I had, yeah, I hadn't seen him in the suit, man. So when he comes out and he's wearing that suit, you're like, that's Robin. Like, <laughs> you know, like you just turn into a kid for a second because he just looks so much like you think Dick Grayson would look. He's got the hair. He's got the jaw. You know, he has a little bit of that swagger that you want him to have. And it was a, I had to take a beat and be like, whoa, this is really happening. You are, you know, you are a kid who grew up in St. Louis, Missouri Buying comics with your allowance, uh, everyone telling you it was a waste of time, and now you know you're in Canada, uh, watching this guy play Dick Grayson, uh, you know, on on a monitor and and 15 feet away from you. It is, I, I can't explain just how wild that that experience can be. Um, but you know, it was it was it was really great that first season, you know. Um, and I'm excited for people to take a look at what it is because Jeff put so much of his kind of heart and soul into it. Um, everyone did, you know, Akiva and, and Greg and, and all that. So uh, yeah, it's it's on the way. It's on that DC streaming service. Go ahead, sign up for that. There's really cool things coming. I just saw the announcement today that Cyborg is going to be on Doom Patrol, and that's really good. That's amazing. We had the uh, we well actually that's more uh, CW news about Batwoman. Uh, showing up oh yeah, yeah. everything but i think that's a no this is honestly i really do think the dc universe as far as the television product is in great hands and i'll admit i and you know obviously the elephant in the room is the is the fuck batman moment in the, in the Titans oh trailer. here's a funny story please so yes. <laughs> that that trailer dropped i think like either i feel like a day or so after my detective comics issue came okay. out right okay and I think it was like the third issue or, or something. And because um, right before Comic Con. Yeah. Exactly, and people yeah. had been like, you know, 
I'm very grateful for for all of the people that have uh, seemingly enjoyed the the story I've been telling in the comics. So I wake up and my Twitter feed is blowing up. My notifications with <laughs> fuck Batman, fuck Batman, fuck Batman, fuck Batman. And I thought every Batman fan in the world had turned against me because of something I had written. I was like, what did I write? Like, what did he do? He didn't do anything. <laughs> I went back and reread it. And like, I don't understand. And so I'm looking at, cause I didn't know the trailer was out. So I'm looking at all this sure. stuff and my, and my Twitter feed is like, and I'm rereading the issue, trying to find out what Batman did that they couldn't handle. And I was like, but he did, I mean, he kicked a guy, but Batman does that. I'm not the first guy to have Batman kick a guy. So, uh, and then I saw the trailer. I was relieved. Okay. I was like, oh, <laughs> fine. The trail, oh, Titans, great, awesome, cool. You know, I, I thought I had like overturned the whole apple cart of of Bat family across the world um, and would be banished <laughs> from all of comicdom. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, uh, 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 people ask me all the time, "Did you write that line?" I'm like, no, I didn't write the line. Um, that was. <laughs> Uh, I don't, you know, I don't remember what script it was in or something. It kind of came in, um, there. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's, it was, it, it was cool to see like all of the reactions and everything to it. Once I realized it wasn't a unilateral rejection of my mind. Yeah, <laughs> so get, you know, provocative moment, obviously, which I think sure. is wise to put in a trailer and have people, sometimes you got to hit people in the nose and have them say, wait a minute, how dare you? Because hopefully then the, the reaction is, well, I, I want to see what leads up to this and what happens. Um, and then there are those who are like, oh, well, then fuck this. This isn't my Titans. So I have to ask is, did they have, I know they had a DC Universe panel. Did they have a Titans panel and were you on it? We did not have a Titans panel at SDCC. We had the DC like kind of script to screen panel that I did. Okay. Um, the Bensons were there oh, and, uh, Lamont from Black Lightning was on oh, that. Terrific. So, so yeah, so we didn't do like a, a, a Titan specific panel, but I was the only, uh, Marv was there. So we had Marv oh, Wolfman, yeah, but I was the suck. only, yeah. yeah, he's awesome. Right? Like again, you're sitting next to Marv Wolfman. There was Michael Mann is right next to you. So you should talk, Brian. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so yeah, so I was there kind of answering some questions, but it was, uh, it was mostly just you know people asking me about that line, of course, and uh, you know. Um, so uh, fuck you know, that man. Exactly what? What do you mean? <laughs> right, right. So I, I, I answered that question uh, quite a few times, did, but did, um, but yeah, no, people have been pretty cool. Was there an, was there a reaction from Marv regarding fuck Batman? No, you know Marv is one of the nicest human beings you'll ever meet. Agreed. Um, so. I, you know, I don't know if he, he, you know, he saw the line because the trailer was up there. Sure. He didn't react to it. But I tell you what, like, profanity around Marv kind of made me feel bad. Oh, that's funny. Well, that's really <laughs> you know? interesting. Because he's, you know, he's such a nice guy. Well, like, sure. Marv is not a guy you think about cursing in front of. Well, and also, not to age the man and everything, but, he, you know, he is at that grandfatherly age. So I get that as well. Yeah, every creator, you know, we, we all have our lines we don't cross. We have our things we won't do. Um... But but you know it's it's like I think it's, it's simultaneously perfectly acceptable for a person to say I don't want to experience that story because of what that story is about and I and I and I also think it's perfectly acceptable for a creator to say well I would like to tell this story because you know I I have these things I want to express 
and to kind of let people decide what they want to experience and what they want to support. Um, and if something does, does come up against your ethics, you know, I think it's perfectly acceptable to be like, nope, I'm not going to engage that. Um, but if we do not continually challenge our ethics, we will forget what our ethics are, right? And we we need to have uh, provocation. And I don't mean that in like the dime store, you know, Alex Jones, like, you're going to turn the frogs against it. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> I'm talking about like actual like provocation, like, you know, something that provokes you to think, to react, to respond, whatever it is. I do think that work is is important, and um, we uh, we do come with the pitchforks and the torches very fast, and it's uh, it's something you know I think that we we should consider you know um, sure, uh, and then you know I mean, you make a decision like do you want your your young person reading that book you know you could say no or sure. you could say yes and and I think those conversations are really important you know I think being able to to table that stuff and and talk about what it makes you feel is is really important you know uh yes but i'm but i'm that guy like i i i i grew up you know reading like frank miller and grant morrison you know um you know and, and hemingway and and sure. joan didion and all of that right so uh i've always kind of been uh um kind of in the frequency of the provocateur in what I liked to, you know, uh, uh, consume, you know, as a viewer, as a reader, as a listener or whatever it is. So I'm probably a bit more prone to, uh, you know, extremity uh, than some people are. Understood. Tara, by the way, of course, and shame on yeah. us, of course, Markovian, uh, as well. Yes. <laughs> shame on us for not remembering Tara's name, or at least for me. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, man, no, it's, it's, and again, I, I think I agree with you, man. As I've said before on word balloon, uh, I was nine. I didn't read the original Green Goblin dying or uh, Gwen Stacy dying at the hands of the Goblin, but I read the Marvel Tales like mm. when I was nine years old. And Jerry Conway right. blew my nine-year-old mind in the best possible way. Of wow, there are real consequences. The good guys don't always win, and sometimes you know the moment that you think oh, that great dramatic moment of wait a minute, you're not dead. I saved you. What 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 the hell's going on? And it's that sad, tragic, dramatic moment. Those are great kind of, I think, creative moments for the right readers. And I think it does. I think it expands their mind. I don't think it... it, And again, everyone is different, but it's not necessarily going to be a traumatic moment. It might be a very mind-evolving moment of understanding Mm. that, yeah, there, there are bigger consequences than the bad guys always lose and the good guys always win. So, uh, no, I think, I think that's great. And I, and I appreciate that kind of ambition. And again, the mores of uh, society is society. You know, you, you do the best you can. You ride with the, with the, the wave, I guess. And, you know, you decide, like you said, are you going to be a, a provocateur or are you going to be, uh, you know, a get along, go along kind of person? And I, you know, who knows? That's, those are, well, you know, those I, are choices. I, mythology is, is super important to, to us as a culture. Um, right. I was just having a conversation with, uh, Someone yesterday, I was in a meeting and I was talking about how we we tend to devalue philosophy as a pursuit. Uh, so you don't really get introduced to a lot of philosophy. I mean, you may be in college, depending on what, what courses you take, but definitely not in high school, kind of where you need it, right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, stories are where philosophy lives now. Uh, for a lot of people, uh, a story might be the first place they get an idea, a concept. 
So it's it's important to remember that when you are kind of weaving your narratives, at least I do. Like I try to think about like what is this about? What does this mean? Am I just being provocative for the sake of being provocative or is there a purpose to this? You know, sure. at least do I perceive a purpose to it? Because the engagement of those ideas is is critically important um, to how we grow and evolve and kind of work our way through our own problems. I mean, philosophy and storytelling have always been interlinked and storytelling is how we explain what lives in the dark. You know, it's how we told people that even though the ice is here, the sun will come, the crops will rise. Uh, yeah. you know, stories, they, they matter in, in that way. And if we tell storytellers, well, there are limits to the evil you can portray. There are limits to the words you can use, you know, the moments that you can, you can dramatize. Um, th- then we're, we're deliberately kind of diluting the power of mythology because there are no limits to what evil can perform in the real world. So uh, if our stories can't match, I think, the potential consequence of actual life, then our stories aren't doing their philosophical job of preparing us for those potential consequences. Fair enough. I, uh, like I said, I, 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 am, I do believe that when it comes to the television world that uh, the DC Universe is in good hands. And uh, yeah, despite that kind of controversy over fuck Batman, I, uh, I, I'm certainly going to... I just laugh every time I hear it. I know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Absolutely, it's hilarious. So, Orlando sent me a picture last night of Amigo, of Robin, and they superimposed yeah. fuck that man on the top Whatever, of the box. Yeah. It's <laughs> hilarious. No, I'm with you, man. Well, and had you ever seen that great fan film, Grayson, uh, fake trailer for a movie that never happened, but it was kind of adult dick uh, coming back to the Robin character after Batman dies and trying to solve the mystery of uh, who killed Batman. Yeah, I saw I saw a little bit of that. I also saw there's um there's a group of guys that do uh, uh I forget the name of it, but they have this Nightwing series on like yes, YouTube. Yes. That I watched sure. and I was like crazy impressed with how much work they'd put into it. I think they were like a group of filmmakers out of Las Vegas or something. And you know, they had everything from, like, pyrotechnics to real stunt oh, yeah. effects and, and actual costumes. I was, like, really impressed with the amount of effort that had gone into it. Are you a Star Trek person? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm not, like, the – I'm probably not as, as Star Trek as Mark Bernardin. Okay. But <laughs> I'm, I'm, like, pretty Star Trek, you know. I've talked to Mark. I haven't had Mark on in a while. But, uh, yeah. yeah I, no. can't, I can't keep up with Mark. On um, most things, I can't keep up with Mark. But <laughs> – yeah, you know, I know my way around around a bridge for well, sure. Because I was going to say, the, a lot of the fan films before uh, CBS and Paramount decided to kind of in the same Star Wars way, and I get it, I understand why they did it. But there were a couple fan film productions that, uh, to me, and I would always describe this to hardcore Star Trek fans that hadn't seen them. I'm like, it's like watching a good, and I mean this in the in the most positive way, a good college acting core production of a Star Trek episode. That said, just like you said about the Nightwing stuff, the 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 special effects that they did it were incredibly ambitious and also uh the one show in particular which I think was called uh, Star Trek Continues, it, they even managed right. to make the lens filters and the lighting and the sets really look like the 60s show. Well, technology is 
yeah, go yeah, on. Like, yeah, like, I, don't, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, but no, like, no, please. So, you know, because I'm a filmmaker, um, uh, I just, you know, need to make more films. But technology used to be the velvet rope that right. could prevent you from making a professional thing. Yes. Now, we have 4K cameras on our phones. Yep. Right? Like, you can edit on anything and and you can learn CGI from like, YouTube instructional videos. So the the line between what like is an official corporate product and what is not is really hard to ascertain sometimes. I I realized how important it is for for people to, you know, kind of maintain the sanctity of their like their rights when I was working on a death short film a few years ago. So there was a friend of mine, an actor named Susie Block. She looks just like Death oh, from great. the uh, game. Oh, that's great. You meant Sandman Death, but go on. Yeah, yeah. She looks just like Death from the game and stuff, awesome. right? So, uh, so I was like, well, you know, Susie, why don't we do like a Death short film and kind of, kind of tell it in the voice of '80s Michael Mann Manhunter? Because nice. that's how my brain works. Nice. And she was like, <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We'll go ahead and do that. So. I had, I had, you know, I had, I had started like, you know, doing some stuff and I made like a little trailer thing and I put it online and, and I hadn't shot the whole short fit yet, but I had footage and I've cut it together and, you know, put a song on it and the whole deal. And then I got a, uh, like a cease and desist, not even a cease and desist. A friend of mine over at Warner brothers was like, Brian, can you take that down? <laughs> and I was like, why? Like, is this a short, like, I'm not trying to make money off of it. I just think it'd be like a neat little thing to do. And they're like, do you understand that you are a professional screenwriter with credits? So if you make a thing based on our thing, the world gets confused. Fair <laughs> enough. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was like, oh, because I don't see myself as like – I don't see myself on that side of the thing. I see, I see myself on the other side of the thing. Still, sure, right? sure. So I just thought I was going to knock around and make something cool for my friends and then we'll just see what we have. I didn't realize that if I continued to promote it, it could turn into a strange press release and wind up on like bleeding cool or something. Well, or yeah, um, like you said, or have a have an entire conglomerate mad at you, which is... have a whole conglomerate mad because because if you make choices that they weren't going to make, and then they got to deal with, with the fact that you made those choices. It, I get it. I I do get Absol- it. It's Star Trek Axanar. That's that's the exact uh, yeah. problem that you know those guys had, and I've and um, yeah, and and it's a shame because it's a great kind of proof of concept 20 minute movie in that specific case and yeah then it's like hey wait a minute we're trying to make our thing so back off man and i you know it's a shame and it's funny because we mentioned scalped earlier i remember seeing a really good student film that took a scene from scalped and uh, i talked to jason about it and stuff and he was you know he'd seen it as well and no i think that stuff is interesting and again you're right i mean uh, this podcast is in a very small way proof of how Technology has been democrat, you know, uh, uh, democratized. If I, if that's the right word, yeah, you know, and and yeah, yeah, it's just easier for us, us average Joes, to like do our own thing. And it's like, hey man, don't wait for that person to read your great, you know, concept of a film or something like that. Go on, shoot it. And you yeah, know, I tell I, people that all the time. You just got to make stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, no, and this is, hey man, this is the radio show I always wanted to hear, and that's why I've been doing it for the, you know, the last thirteen years in the fourteenth year now. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's, it's a great time and it's, and, but again, yeah, it's like, well, as much as you love Spider-Man, it's like, you know, be aware that Disney has a lot of money and they're going to like kind of, if, you know, if you do too well, good and they a have job, to be. you know, yeah, because we're so close to being able to replicate the effects 
um, yeah. you know, on, in, in our short work and in our kind of homegrown work. And now where you have like, you know, I might be the last generation that considers a theatrical release the the primary way to, you know, watch a film. Uh, I hear you. Yes, yes. So I, you know, I, I work with uh, some young people uh, every now and then, just kind of like you know, doing a lot of kind of talks and kind of helping people get through self esteem issues and all of that, and and trying to like refocus kids that are maybe maybe made some bad choices and they got to oh, get wow. themselves back. Well, that that makes sense and, for your detective story, but go on, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of Jefferson Pierce's stuff is based on my experience, kind of working with kids. That's great. But it, it's amazing how bad the quality is of what they will watch and they don't care yes yes no you're right man no my focus group is my two 20 something nephews who i go to all the time and frankly even 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 he's kind of even the 22 year old is kind of too old and i you know i should probably be talking to some tweeners and everything that are you know but you're right go on yeah like you know if, if the image is like you know, if the image is degrading, if it's stuttering, if they're watching it on the face of a watch, like they yes. just don't care. Yeah. So, so now because people are, you know, I don't need it to be on a fifty-foot screen for me to in, enjoy it. I can watch it on my computer. I can watch it on my slate. I can watch it on my phone. Whatever it is, there's so little difference between, you know, watching someone's YouTube film on your phone and watching a hundred million dollar film on your phone yep. when you just have it at that size that it's remarkable how good this content can be. It's really exciting as a, as an artist, as a creator. I think it's super exciting. But I can understand as a rights holder, it puts you in a weird position because you have to be the person telling someone who loves your stuff that they can't show that love by making something. Agreed. And yeah. it's a hard place to be, but I do get the business reasons behind well, it. Well, and it's and again, this is something I think the the studios and the networks have never had to face before. I mean, and that's yeah, and, and it, as, sure. as a as a broadcaster watching all these industries react to the citizen media that's being generated, I I love it, and I'm part of the movement, but I'm also part of the broadcast world, so it's it's very very interesting. I do see both sides. God, I feel like Trump. Both sides. Uh, both sides. Both sides. See both sides. Every, every time I sides. have to say both sides, I'm like, oh, that asshole. But anyway, I. Uh, but yeah, it's it is. It's very very interesting. And um, well, I mean, you yeah. know, like like looking at Trump, like like not like the political part of it, but just literally, this is a guy who's born from citizen media. Oh, absolutely. You know, like, good lord. I mean, yeah, he's billionaire and the rest of it, and he got a money apprentice and the whole thing. But without citizen media, you know, a grassroots campaign like that just wouldn't have worked. So we're in this new age where you know crowdfunding yeah. and social media and you know just. Everyone becoming broadcasters and, you know, and it's I, – I, I don't think we appreciate – not you specifically, but I don't think like culture appreciates the moment that we're in. I think we will 25 years from now look back at this moment we're in and realize that's when those big changes really started to happen. Oh, yeah. Wherever we wind up, we're in the moment of the, of the chaotic change. Yes. Right now. You know, and it's it's fascinating to sort of see it kind of unfold in real time. We're all in the back seat, and it it's my it, I have this recurring dream every now and then that I'm in the back seat of a car and nobody's behind the wheel, and it's like and that's <laughs> I know the way that yeah. 
if you have extra time, I think I'll, I'll, I'll explain more and maybe you can help me out with that when you're not helping the kids. But, uh, <laughs> but no, <laughs> right on. but yeah, it's, no, it's, it's, fa- and I love, and I'll, I'll also admit, uh, because I left a couple big broadcasting companies recently, uh, changed jobs and stuff that man, some of the, some of the suits, and I'm only talking about my own experience. And again, this is my, my comments. You don't have to chime in if you don't want to, but part of my joy is that the CEOs in the suits, they don't know how it's all going to shake out. And that's why they're freaking out as well. And they will put a brave face on when they need to. And I, especially in a, in a radio broadcasting world where they, yeah, we understand this podcasting thing. And it's like bullshit you do because none of yeah. us do. And I know that as a foot soldier and I know you're, I know the emperor has no, no clothes and it's great to work with people in radio that don't take that attitude and are like, Hey, we're all just trying to figure this out. And it's like, Great. And luckily, currently, I'm working with those kinds of people in broadcasting. So that's a relief. But yeah, it's well, you're like the perfect storm, John, like because you, you're someone who knows the in and outs of the traditional sort of radio broadcasting yeah. world. Yeah. Right. So now you can apply all of that knowledge to your own endeavors. Exactly. You know, yeah. and and that's that's a, like a, a very kind of unique sort of place to be, you know, cause you understand a bit like it, it's, it's like if I were trying to try to make my own television show on YouTube, not like funded by YouTube, but like I just went off and did it yeah, on my own. Yeah. Well, I'd be taking everything I've learned from TV for working in two television seasons, which isn't a lot, like it isn't the most, but it might be enough to kind of make this choice instead of that choice, make this choice instead of that choice. And then the resulting work might be a little sharper, like a little more penetrative and all that. It's, it's, uh, I think it's it's a net positive. Yes. Um, but we just have to kind of just be careful, you know, with uh, yeah, man. the hyperbole yep. of it all. Oh yeah. Know? Oh, absolutely. No, it's a it's a fascinating time. And again, I don't claim to have answers. I I am, like you said, taking what I've learned and and applying it to word balloons certainly, uh, and and keeping my options open in radio and and hopefully things will progress the way that I want them to. But yeah, it's it's a fun time. And like, it's, it's I, you know, forgive the schadenfreude, but yeah, sometimes it's more the people that I no longer work with and they're either bullshit of, oh yeah, we know what's going on, or their real belief that they think they do, and they clearly don't. And it's just like, well, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> good it's, luck. You know, it, it's... um. It's a kind of a it's kind of a moment of, of chaos and, and deep opportunity. And yep. uh, in in situations like this and kind of eras like this, it's it's good to be the the small nimble ship. Agreed. And not the huge ship that takes a week to turn around. Damn straight. Right? Yes, sir. I said the same analogy. Absolutely. Yep. <laughs> you gotta be nimble right now. Yep. You gotta kinda gotta be able to react and 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 really be able to make those those degree shifts quickly because just like sticking to the same old plan, same old thing. I mean, you heard about the Oscars thing now where they yes, want to like create a new yeah, category. Pop, yeah, for, popular movie, which I, I get they're it. trying to keep up. Huh? They're trying to keep up. Well, they're just sure. trying to, you know, but like, isn't we got to be relevant. How do we be relevant? But, yeah. but isn't that funny, yeah. Brian? Because literally that's been a 20, at least a 20-year argument. At least. Yeah, absolutely. And so that yeah. is interesting that, they, that the ship finally turned 20 years later and they're like, okay, we get it now. So, and it's... <laughs> It's sure. I, and I appreciate that, but I, I mean, God, just like you said about going to the movies now, um, you know, shock and awe. I was going to bring it up, and that reminds me to talk to you about that real fast. The the Rob yeah. Reiner movie about 
you know, the beginnings of the Iraqi war. And, uh, right, and right. Uh, yeah, it was the Iraqi war. Right? I had to, I had to, <laughs> to remind yeah, myself. It was. But yeah, that he put, Reiner put the movie out, not only in theaters, but knowing what really does happen these days in theaters, he also put it online. So you can watch it and buy it on iTunes for a reasonable price, rent it for a reasonable price, less than a movie ticket, um, or you can mm-hmm. go to the theater and see it. So it's both. And there aren't a ton of movies that are doing that, but it seems that now the the, the less blockbustery movies are, are really kind of making that move, and I think it's a smart move because I, I know there are movies where I'm like, oh, that's interesting, but I don't need to see that on a big screen. I can wait for that. That'll, I'll wait, well, I'll wait for work in, I used to work in marketing and uh, advertising when I came out of NYU because I had a film degree, and that's useless, so I had to figure out some <laughs> way to eat. I hear you. <laughs> so... I, I worked at, you know, they, they, they cared a little bit about that. So I got to work there, you know, pay my bills, uh, get, get insurance, get a tooth fixed. But, um, you know, I used to always like say, I don't, and this is me talking at like, as like a 22 year old, like, I don't think you can change consumer behavior. I think you have to respond to exactly. it. Exactly. Yep. And, and certain people in, in the company would be like, yeah, well, you know, what Brian's saying makes sense. You know, we agree. And other people would just be too staid about it. Like, nope, we are, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to force them. And look, if people want to consume things on tablets and phones and whatever, and you're not going to be present on that platform, then they will find things to consume that are present yep. on that platform. And by the time you get there, they've already locked in their habits, yep. you know, like you've got your dedicated listeners. So you know, like they're your listeners. They they now they follow you to where you go and, and all of that. And uh, uh, when when like corporations come to podcasters and YouTubers, they say, "Well, hey, we see all the all the attention you're getting and the platform you're building. You should come work with us." People are like, "Well, but I don't want to, right? <laughs> well, right? Because I don't have your oversight and I'm doing fine. What are you giving me that I can't give myself? Right, and what rules do I have to comply to to compromise right. to fit your square or your box? To fit your square, yep. right? Yep. Like it's and and the result of that is you get really unique content. So instead of me doing uh, a 15 minute or a 6 minute piece for like NPR, right? Or for some other, you know, uh, radio yeah. uh, platform, yeah. right? That just like, okay, we're going to talk about comics for like a little bit. We got Brian Hill here, whatever, whatever you know, get the, get the piece in, get the piece out, go, go to the ad. You can do uh, multiple hours deep dive in a way <laughs> that they can't, which is what your audience wants. And your audience is a lot of people, you know? And so if I'm getting a real conversation with creators, like if, if John and Tom King are talking for a couple hours, I I much rather follow that than get my comic book minute over here on this corporate thing, exactly. you know. And you're, and I think we're we're creating consumers that really want specific solutions to their entertainment needs, and they're not taking general anymore. People want something that is uniquely constructed for them because there's so many choices they can find something. Agreed, and and uh, the the same the network programming. And the citizen media generated programming, it's all coming out of the same places because they are watching their television shows on Hulu and uh, other online platforms, mm-hmm. along with watching it on television. That television For is sure. now just one option. And yeah, I mean, no, you get it, Brian, and exactly. And I, I appreciate you articulating it the way that you did because yeah, I, it's this is this is when I like. I'm like, 
Okay. All right. Again, I don't know everything. I think I'm going in the right, right direction. My audience is following. And yeah, so that's good. All right. So we won't need couch time. I, I think I, I, I won't have to tell you more about my crazy <laughs> dreams other than the uh, nobody driving uh, the car. So <laughs> right on. Well, I believe in your crazy dreams. So, <laughs> hey, man, honestly, this is great. It was a great conversation. And I and especially this end part, which only I think inspires a lot of creative people that want to make their own comics, that want to make their own stuff. And that is like why I like getting into talking about these circles as well as just about uh, comic books specifically. So uh, continued success. I am, I am very excited about Titans. I, uh, I have, I, I, I got to sit down and watch uh, your episodes of Ash and Evil Dead. Uh, and I'm intrigued that it oh, is in sure. the half hour format. I forgot about that. Dana Gould was telling yeah, me yeah, about I, that too. How are you watching Stand Against Evil as a horror fan? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I've watched a little bit of it. I tried not to watch it while I was working on Evil Dead Fair because enough. I didn't want to bring it into the room. Sure, sure. But, um, yeah, I've watched it. I mean, I love McGinley, so yeah, uh, me too. I'll, I'll follow that guy, you know, from project to project to project. But, um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's really cool. I think, you know, this, this, again, like, that's where we are now, where a show like that can, can get out there and find a little bit of an audience, you know, yes. whereas before when you had three networks or five networks or even 10 networks, it wouldn't, but now you've got choices. Well, man. and Bobcat's uh, show, I haven't watched Bobcat's show yet. Yeah. Yeah. I saw the ads in, in detective, but I haven't been go. able to tune into it yet. <laughs> I noticed you know, that I grew up on that guy. That guy is hilarious. So well, and I, I'm, I'm a big Bobcat fan. Yeah, me too. And I, and honestly, I'm, I'm a big fan of his films as well. I think he's a really interesting filmmaker. So it shakes the clown, man. Oh, God, like that yes. was the movie when I was in high school. Like, Hilarious. you know, if you had the VHS tape with shakes the clown on it, you were popular. <laughs> I, I felt the same way. I think I was, I think I was just out of college. Cause it was like eight. Well, maybe my last, maybe my senior year or something like that it was like 87, 88, something like that. Right. Yeah. 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 Hilarious. I got a petition scream factory to get like a prestige DVD release of shakes the clown. I have, man. A feeling, <laughs> I have a feeling it did come out finally either on Blu-ray. I think it did because oh, right on. I, I got to track that down. Just pick heard, that up. Yeah. I just heard Bobcat on with Leonard Malton and on his podcast Ooh. and he was talking about a screening of it. And I think that was the one of the reasons why they were doing a screening was that it might have finally made it to Blu-ray. So yeah, I hope so. I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to Amazon right after this right, and we'll find out. see if I can give Mr. Goldthwait some money. But uh, really, man, nice going, nice going in the comics, nice going with the TV. And uh, I uh, thank you so much. Please, John. Yeah, please come back. I, I will we'll further the, the discussion, and I'll get deeper into the comics and uh, and television worlds of uh, Brian Edward Hill. Oh sure, and you know when Titans premieres and it's out, and I can talk about it, I'm uh, I'm happy to come back on and give you a little bit more insight into uh, into the series. I just can't say much now because sure it's not out yet, but oh yeah, man. I'm more than happy to do that. Okay, that's great because truly, I, I do appreciate yourself and Joe Henderson and uh, some of the other guys, Jeff Loeb certainly that has the you know their feet both in in comics and and in uh, and the Bensons of course uh, in the t- and the TV world because. As we've said, interesting times, and uh, it's great to get uh, a ringside perspective that you guys have. So, no, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. This has been great. There you go, Brian Edward Hill. I hope you enjoyed today's Wood Balloon Conversation. Again, it was brought to you by InStock Trades at InStockTrades.com. Let's see what else is going on this week at InStock Trades. Wednesday can't get here quick enough. You've got the Human Torch and the Thing uh, Strange Tales Collection. This is, uh, man, Stan, Jack, uh, Larry Lieber, Dick Ayers, really great stuff. And uh, this is uh, way back in the uh, 60s when uh, the, the Human Torch and the Thing 
were the leads. I remember, I believe that's where they wore their beetle wigs, was uh, in this collection. But that book is 42% off. It's $23.19. There's JSA by Jeff Johns. It's funny, we just had Jerry Ordway on the show about a month ago. But uh, this is a great collection of 16 through 25. This must be volume two. It absolutely is. And uh, it's 400 pages, 42% off, $17.39. There's Ed Brubaker's final volume of Kill or Be Killed, volume four. Ed Brubaker, Sean Phillips, what a great team. What a great series. 15 through 20 is uh, volume four's uh, contents. And it's 176 pages, 42% off, $9.85. There's also Harley Quinn, Trade Paperback, Volume 6. And that is by Frank Thierry and Inaki Miranda. It's 42% off, $11.59. Some of the great books available at InStockTrades.com. Check it out. Great books at great prices. If you have an order of $50 or more, you'll receive free shipping from InStockTrades.com. Word Balloon is also brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Now, I said it earlier, all of my panels at Terrificon, they're going to be going up weekly, and that's going to start at the end of this week. And again, I think the framework for it should be Word Balloon 101, Word Balloon University, because these are like lectures from some amazing comic book creators. They are fantastic, candid conversations. I can't believe in some of the directions they went into. You will hear which uh, legendary comic book creators never liked Robin. Never felt he belonged in Batman. Very interesting stuff. I'm not saying who. You're going to have to listen to the panels. Uh, Great Marvel cosmic conversations between Roy Thomas and Jim Starlin. And an Infinity Gauntlet conversation between Starlin, Ron Lim, and Joe Rubenstein. The art team and the great writer of the Infinity Gauntlet. Really amazing stuff. Hats off to the uh, Terrificon uh, guests as well. The the people that came. uh, The fans asked great questions. So, really great discussions. Like I said, it felt like a lecture series. So, uh, consider Word Balloon University open for back-to-school season and uh, take the eight-week course. Or you can go to uh, patreon.com and uh, get the course in advance if you subscribe to Word Balloon. It's my way of saying thank you to the League of Word Balloon listeners for your continued support via Patreon. Patreon.com slash Word Balloon or go to the Patreon ad at wordballoon.com. Thanks for listening. Uh, just in a couple of days, we're going to have that uh, first episode from Terrificon. Also, uh, going to be talking to Bill Morrison as I'm recording this about Yellow Submarine, Mad Magazine, and sadly, the end of uh, Bill's old stomping grounds, Bongo Comics. Also, Mike Norton and I will be doing a live word balloon session. That is going to be at Challengers Comics on Wednesday at 5 o'clock. I hope you'll come and uh, watch us do it. And also, I hope to be doing this on Twitch. So uh, be watching your social media. Follow me on Twitter, at John Word Balloon, or uh, my Facebook page under my name, John Suntress, and also the Word Balloon Network for uh, you know announcements. I'm also on Instagram under Word Balloon. All those places I will be uh, making those announcements and letting you know about, uh, hopefully, Word Balloon's first Twitch. I hope you'll join me Wednesday afternoon for that. And again, on social media, I'll remind you, don't worry. So thanks for listening. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2018.